was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. And welcome to the latest episode of The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray. And this week, we are talking about the latest episode of Bad Faith, which featured two of our most interesting, controversial, uh, tweet-worthy guests, Batya Unger-Sargon, author, uh, opinion editor at Newsweek, and also Thomas Chatterton-Williams, who is also an author and who focuses on some really interesting questions and ideas around race. The idea for this episode sprung up after the brouhaha around Whoopi Goldberg saying that Jews are white and the Holocaust wasn't about race a couple of weeks ago. It might feel like it's a little bit in the distant past, but I was really interested in having a conversation about some of the more substantive implications of the argument and how the press responded to it, namely this question of whether the conversation I had a couple of months ago with uh, Thomas about racecraft and the idea that people who are described as historically marginalized groups should continue to commit to the um, racial prescriptions that were innovated by people with the per- who only did so with the purpose of subjugating those groups. So in that conversation, we talked about the one drop rule and the extent to which black people, you know, self-define as black according to a rule that was invented with the purpose of keeping black people in bondage so that if white slave masters, you know, raped and impregnated slaves, those slaves would not gain freedom. Those, the offspring would not gain freedom and kind of questioned the wisdom of pursuing that approach when there are other models that exist all over the world. And I had some pushback and we back, went back and forth. But as I listened to the discussion emerge around the Whoopi Goldberg statements on the view, it seemed clear to me that there was an there's an investment in not just understanding the specific persecution of Jews in the context of the Holocaust, but Jews as a race, as a racial identity separate and apart from any other kind of ethnic identity, which is similarly specific and hereditary and all these kinds of things. So I wanted to bring these two people together because I know that they are the types who are willing to really dig into that sort of conversation, a sticky wicket, as it were, where a lot of other people would be too afraid to go to help me. Through this conversation, we have the one and the only Katie Rose Halper. You know her, you love her from the Katie Halper Show. Uh, welcome, Katie. I'm bringing you up to the stage now to help me um, thread this needle. Um, hello. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for bringing me on. Let's, let's have a sewing party. <laughs> well, Katie, just to orient people, I'm going to go ahead and play a quick clip from the episode so people can get a sense of the arguments that were laid out. And then we can get right to it. I see the queue is very long. Um, so without further ado, let's let's hit it. The reason why what will be said was so frustrating was because it erased the extent to which what whatever we think about what race is, Nazis believed that Jews were ethnically, racially distinct. And wanted to wipe them from the planet Mm -hmm. because of something that was inextricable, intrinsic, perceived to be intrinsic. And if you ignore that aspect of it, you live in a weird ahistorical world where if you just said, hey, never mind, I'm Catholic now, everything's fine. 
it's the same thing that black people always, I mean, you, you put it on the rising that will be basically all lives mattered. The issue it's the same complaint that black people make when they say, well, our concerns, our problems aren't the same as everybody else's. We have had a specific kind of harm. We are being attacked because of who we are. And if you take that away, then you're unlikely to be willing to protect us because of who we are. It seems to me like there's a real political advantage to folks who want to undermine the same way they're doing with CRT and other things. Anything that is racially particularized to help historically marginalized groups by saying you can do the same thing to white people. That is, that is my only, I think, quibble here. I hear that. Like that's, I think that's an important thing to point out. The problem is, is what's happening right now is that whenever a group that's like the wrong type of minority Asians or Jews, right, um, needs protections from racism, they get assimilated to the white monolith that does not deserve protections, right? So it's kind of a two-way street, right? If but who is but who is doing that? Because well, there, okay, there I'll, are I'll, I'll give you, people. So, I'll, give you, I'll give you a very just clear-cut example. So for two years, Orthodox Jews were being beaten up in the streets of Brooklyn every single day. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't get any politicians to talk about it. That thing where no one would talk about this violence until it got so bad that they were actual mass murders, that is that is this. It's that Jews have been assimilated into whiteness by the woke left, forgive me for using that term. And so their their grievances are considered like white people grievances, which are not worthy of concern. Yeah, I think the problem is saying that because you're white, you can't have a grievance. I, I would rather say white people can have legitimate grievances, obviously, than say everybody, who, if I want people to respect one's individual, uh, 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 particular grievance, I have to define them as non-white. All right, Katie, we're off to the races. I know you listened to this episode a little bit earlier today. What were your thoughts? Well, I thought it was interesting when I heard Batya speaking, I was like, who is this? Because she made a bunch of concessions to Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, so I was very surprised to hear them coming from her because she, I guess, had changed her opinion from earlier comments that I, I guess she must have gotten pushback from. Well, what's, um, what's, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. But um, I think that there are some, like, what I thought was really interesting about your discussion with her um, and uh, CTW, TCW, mm-hmm. Tom, Thomas Henderson Williams, uh, was the the question of power and how that plays into racism um, and how that, what that looks like in different forms with different kind of groups participating in it. Yeah. So, so say more. Uh, So I I guess, and I feel uncomfortable almost because I, uh, as a leftist secular Jew who is very reluctant to kind of prioritize my people's suffering because I think that that's a bad tendency. Uh, I also think that uh, obviously racism, anti-black racism in the United States uh, is experienced in a very different way from anti-Semitism. And I'm very reluctant to and wary of kind of downplaying it, downplaying anti-black racism by comparing the two things because they are very distinct. But then I feel like I sometimes like bend over backwards not to acknowledge anti-Semitism. And also because Mm -hmm. I'm someone who's constantly disgusted by the way that anti-Semitism is used, claims of anti-Semitism is used to stifle uh, criticism of Israel. So it's kind of a weird conversation for me to be in, although it's actually really not that hard to hold those two things in your head at the same time, which is that anti-Semitism is weaponized and that there is anti-Semitism. 
Yeah, I don't understand, to be honest, why every single conversation ends up being this weird comparison between blacks and Jews. Like, yeah. It's really exhausting. Like, who's even can't. talking? Yeah, I mean, this was a conversation where, and, and, and I might be wrong about this, and it might be overly generous to Whoopi, but I honestly feel like her actually saying this isn't about people of color, this is about white people, was an effort to not actually make this comparison, <laughs> like to separate those things out. Like, right. this, is, this is none of my business, is almost what I right. felt like she was saying. Um, in order to just be able to have a conversation where, ironically, she was trying to defend the use of mouse in school and argue that people need to be uh, learning more about the Holocaust. Right. You know, what she, you know, uh, what she thought was a, probably a solidaristic push. Right. Um, that weirdly is the implication always seems to be that somehow it's about, you know, black people in particular, and we see this with Ilhan Omar's remarks and things like that, seem to, in, in Cornell West and what's his, um, uh, uh, sorry, the guy, I'm sorry, I'm just completely blanking his name because I need to eat dinner. Um, from from the guy who's at the river, from the river, river to the sea and Mark Lamont Hill, Mark, sorry, Mark Lamont Hill. Oh, yeah. You know, there's always seems to be this like implication that there's something particularly untoward going on. Right. And it makes you feel like it, it, it does do, do worry that it might have a chilling effect on people like Whoopi Goldberg even trying to have solidarity, <laughs> even right. trying to say right. something right. sympathetic in the first place. Yeah. No, I think that's true. And I thought that the response to it was weird, was interesting because people were very offended, but they also kind of seemed to really want her to, to like, uh, have a teachable moment. And then I guess this is not really political. This is more kind of just personal. I was, I think that like, again, not on a political level, but on a personal one, she did this really annoying thing where her apology was kind of passive aggressive, like politics aside, whether I think she should have been suspended, which I don't actually but she did this really ineffective, I think, apology where she's like, I heard what you have to say and I'm going to have to take your word for it. And I'm never going to say that stuff again. So, yeah, she doesn't she doesn't she doesn't believe she was wrong. I mean, yeah, she fundamentally believes that Jews are white. And so she right. doesn't understand like she doesn't. And, and here's what here's what's interesting to me. Well, I, we were trying to get to the bottom of on this podcast was it is it necessary to accept that Jews are non-white? to avoid doing the thing that Whoopi did that was wrong, which was to departicularize and flatten the persecution of Jews in this context because they were perceived to be something intrinsically different, something biologically different. Right. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that obviously even, I mean, we go back and forth so much between terms that other people have set up for us and we kind of forget that they're inventions and they're social constructs, Right. So even when we're talking about this, I'm like, well, Jews, they are kind of white, but they're kind of not white. And I was going to say, like, we know that the Jewish part isn't, and I don't even know how to talk about this, but obviously there are Jews who are of color, right? So there are Jews who are white and there are Jews who are of color. So does the Jewish part, is it like a different axis that we have to put in here? Because Like, it's obviously black. to me, like, I, I'm so exhausted. I'm like, obviously to me, like, that's, that was, was so frustrating. Like, if you think that... The whole conceit that, the, you know, that there's something, you know, you know, that's passed down in hereditary is blown up by all of these Jews that do claim to have that hereditary ancestry. But there's plenty of other Jews that are like very much. No, you're not in the in the tribe. All, you know, all of the, the conflict and strife around Ethiopian Jews, et, et cetera. So this idea that suddenly we're going to unify behind this idea of a Jewish race, but also you can be black or white or anything else within the Jewish race. It seems to me to be obviously a weird little 
dosey do two step. Right. That's well, extremely inconsistent. Like it's Cameron Diaz white or something else. Like we have no problem with understanding the concept of white Latino. You're white right. and Latino. You're black and Latino. Right. Like these are not, this is not complicated. So why can't you be white and Jewish and perfectly legitimately persecuted on the axis of your Jewishness? Just like you can right. be white and gay <laughs> right. and, and have hate crimes against you for those reasons. Why, why the, why the push to de, you know, to racialize, not just to other or, you know, set that aside as a, as a historically marginalized group, but to racialize Judaism in this moment. Yeah. Or Jewishness, which is the other interesting question, right? Because Judaism, I mean, this is a whole different thing, but like Judaism is the religion and these terms get thrown around interchangeably all the time, but it's really Jewishness because Mm -hmm. I identify as Jewish, but I'm not at all religious. So Mm -hmm. Judaism isn't a part of my life, but Jewishness is or Jewry, I guess. I mean, this goes, I always explain to people that I, uh, I don't know if I told this on this story, on this show, but I had a boyfriend years ago who was Puerto Rican, mm-hmm. and his, and he was like he told his dad he had a new girlfriend, and the dad was like, oh no, is she Puerto Rican? He was like, no, and dad was like, Dominican? No, Italian? No. So what is she? And my then boyfriend said Jewish, and the dad said Jewish, Jewish, or Woody Allen Jewish. Which actually, what was meant by that? He meant like religious or culturally Jewish. Mm. Now, uh, Woody Allen's a problematic. Uh, figure for many reasons so what i've done is i've swapped that out with bernie basically i'm a mm-hmm. bernie jew mm-hmm. but i thought it was interesting that this native that this new yorkian kind of got the the a jewish identity that a lot of people either don't really understand or kind of do on some level they get it like how you can be jewish and not religious mm-hmm. um so that and that is the type of jew that i am uh and it's it's just really interesting because there are people who are uh you know, when, when my mom was growing up, like you didn't really, although she passed for a lot of different things, she and her brother, both thought people thought they were Italian. People thought they were Latino, but in certain circumstances in their neighborhood in the Bronx, people just knew. And then if you, they knew that their name was Eisenberg, they knew. And so like Bronx Irish Catholic school kids would throw rocks at them. It's something I never remotely, I never experienced anything remotely like that. So it's interesting how those things, those, uh, definitions of identity change so much over time and i'm actually a uh, little plug i'm having um adolf reed on my show tomorrow 7 p.m on youtube.com slash the katie helper show then i'm going to bring him over here for a calling but he's he wrote a book he has a new book called the south and it was just crazy reading it because i kind of forgot that like adolf reed, reed lived part of his life i'm just not conscious of it when i'm thinking about him like lived part of his life under jim crow mm-hmm and oh my god, I am not comparing. Wow, but like, comparing. but don't yeah. but like Katie. Sometimes it's just like even saying I'm not comparing is comparing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so so let me let me ask you this question: Do you I identify as white? And say that. Yes, I identify as white. Yeah. So like, what is all of this? Like, what are we even talking about here? Because so so Batya on the on the podcast, um, you know, you know, argue that Jews are not white. And she kind of sidestepped, I think, what was the direct question. Like, do you – I didn't ask her in, the, in this way, but, like, do you identify as white? She kind of deflected to the fact that there are Jews of all races, and therefore, of course, not all Jews are white. Right. But what I really wanted to know was, do you think you are white? Is right, Barbara Streisand white? Is Jared Kushner white? Is Woody right. Allen white? Right, which proves – I mean, the fact that there are ones that are and aren't proves, again, that it's not along the same axis. So, yeah. Right. 
And then, and then, and then, so Katie, like, if we're going to say, like, I can't define what Barbara Streisand thinks about herself. I have, don't have the honor to meet her right now. I'm going to say Barbara, let's just start it right here. Barbara Streisand identifies as a woman of color. <laughs> I mean, if we're doing like her the racial trades, Barbara. I would take her, but <laughs> I mean that voice. Um, but you know, like just if, if, if like, I felt like a little like gaslit in this whole thing. Cause it's like, I- I'm sorry. Like I'm all of a sudden, all of these people that we've been describing as white our entire lives. Like I- I'm not, I'm not talking about the sixties. I'm certainly not talking about the thirties or forties. Right. I was born in 1985. I'm talking about my life. And in my life, there was never any question whether, you know, Bette Mittler was white or not. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm going with all these songs dresses today, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I just, I, I, that's what was so interesting to me. Cause what it, here, here's what it is. It felt like to me that there was an unspoken acknowledgement that in America, there is a hierarchy, you know, we keep saying, I don't want to compare, I want to care, but there is a tacit hierarchy of grievances that puts racialized grievances in particular, anti-black racialized grievances, but never mind, just racialized grievances at the top. Me saying that is not an endorsement of that hierarchy. It's just saying out loud what no one seems to be saying. Yeah. And that because that hierarchy exists and, and anybody, you know, everybody wants to have kind of the maximum claim for obvious reasons, public sympathy, uh, getting legal power behind you, defending you and all these things. You, it's the, the best way to, to get action. The best way to defend your claim is to assert a racialized grievance. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, and you see a little bit of it when you see some of these LGBT, LGBT issues where people say, you know, um, you know, black queer bodies, they become kind of leveraged in conversations yeah, right. by people who are not people of color yeah. to kind of expand the, te- or like, you know, ratchet up yeah. the urgency of a claim that's being made. Yeah. It's like oppression bingo kind of. Right. Right. And, 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 and I, I agree with Bati and others who are frustrated that might, that may, they might think that certain kind of harms aren't paid enough attention to, whether it's, you know, Hasidic Jews being you know, beat up or, or whatever scenario it is. But my response to that wouldn't be like, let's all just gaslight everyone into thinking that people we always thought were white suddenly aren't white. Yeah. Let's just like address the elephant in the room, which is that we have this oppression Olympics and that we should maybe not. Yeah. I think maybe part of it, I didn't think about this before, I'm just thinking out loud, is that like there is so much white privilege is so applied to Jews, like white Jews, obviously, mm-hmm. that I think maybe there's almost like a fear. Like we want to make sure people know that there are some people for whom, right, like the Jews will not replace us people, mm-hmm. for whom that white privilege does not uh, count that much. Mm-hmm. Now, again, kind of going back to Whoopi Goldberg's point, like I'm walking down the street, I'm not going to be the Klan could run past me or the Jews will not replace us. People could mm-hmm. run past me. So I understand that there are those differences, but I think maybe that's part of it. Mm-hmm. It's like at any moment, like despite the gains and relative, you know, success and safety of Jews. And of course, Jews aren't a monolith and mm-hmm. you've got to look at class. But like certainly being Jewish is not the, the thing that it used to be. Um, I think maybe that's it. It's like, and yet at the same time, there are people who are saying Jews will not replace us. People going into synagogues, committing hate crimes. Yeah, I, I think that is a legitimate point, and I will I will acknowledge my own kind of blinders on this as someone who you know grew up in New York, where the idea of kind of you know 
people not knowing Jews or being unfamiliar or having these kind of open prejudices was a little anathema. I remember as a kid, though, reading where, where um, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret. Yeah. And it's set in some, I don't know, middle American town. And there's a scene where there's a Jewish girl who moves to town and like they're at her house and everyone's being so weird about it. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember reading it going like, what? It, it was like reading a book where suddenly everyone made a really big deal that, you know, some girl was wearing jeans. And right. it's just like, it's there in the book. And I'm like reading it and I understand what's supposed to be happening. But I'm like, this is such a weird, it, 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 it was a moment in my youth where I realized that my context was not the necessarily the average context of an American interacting with Jewish people in this country. Right. Katie, you're a little time limited today, right? I have about until 8.30. Okay, yeah. so I want to I wanna play this second clip for you and get your response to it, because this is another major issue that came up in the context of the conversation, and there wasn't enough time to dig into each of these individually. But I think it raises a really interesting question that I'm unsettled on, and I wanted to get your take. Here we okay. go. Is there a difference? Is there a ethical difference? Is there a kind of um, political difference between hating someone because you perceive them to be less human than you, intellectually inferior to you, morally inferior to you, predisposed to violence or avarice or whatever prejudice is ascribed to one's own group. And hating someone in a way that erases their individuality but because they belong to a group that has historically marginalized you, or because let's say you got mugged by a member of that group or cheated by a member of that group or whatever it is. And therefore you have over, over identified that, that trait to the entire group. And is, is there a difference between those two kinds of prejudice? Yes, there, there's a nuance there, but both are racializing people. Both are attributing group characteristics to individuals based on immutable characteristics, that's racism. I don't care what any sociologist comes around saying about larger power dynamics, that's racism. You're not treating people as individuals based on the myth and lie of shared common genetic heredity. That's that's racism. Mm. I don't need to talk about a larger social structure. Now, there is a nuanced difference when you bring up what you brought up and there's a kind of uh, power at play. And that I think that needs to be discussed and brought into the conversation. But I think that there's a huge mistake, especially when you're trying to be persuasive with non-academics, people outside of more educated uh, and jargon-centric conversations. There's a real mistake because you're telling them that what they know and what they see and with their own senses is incorrect. And that there's actually this other thing going on, this, this invisible structure you can't see that has to always be, that trumps the actual racism that they are seeing. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I hear you. But if, if, if everything is racism, is nothing racism? All right, Katie. So do you think there is, I guess, a meaningful difference between those two kinds of racism? So I want to be be sure that I'm understanding what the two types of things that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I, I may be a little slow right now. You're saying that there's the racism that's like, uh, let's take one group. Okay. So let's say we're talking about black people, right? Mm-hmm. So one group of people thinks that black people are what, like more criminal and they've been robbed by a black person maybe. No, I think those are actually each of the two separate things. So there is traditionally what I think of as racism 
yeah. like racialized, you know, yeah, racism is believing that another group is intrinsically inferior to your own because they are intellectually inferior, uh, morally inferior, prone to violence, um, those kinds of things. Okay. Uh, and then there are, there's a kind of reactionary racism that I experience a lot among black people where it's like, oh, white people be doing this, that, and the other. I'm so tired of white people. Right. You know? Um, and I think Thomas Chatterton William told a story, uh, an anecdote in the course of the right. podcast about, you know, someone who kind of prejudged a white person. And I look at a retail context and the white person was left feeling like, and that's not fair. You know, I'm not all white people. Like she was afraid of him or something. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, white people, colonial, you know, white people are colonizers and white people yeah. cause all this harm against black bodies. And that kind of like generalized claim being right. attributed to like one woman in target or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a substantive. So I misunderstood. I thought you were talking about like two types of racism against the same people. It seems like you're talking about your. Well, you're it could be against the same people, right? Because you could you could have, you know, someone could have the kind of racism against black people that I described. You know, I think you're just inherently inferior for all these reasons. Or there could be a person who honestly didn't have much in the way of prejudice before, but gets mugged. Right. Um, and it's like, well, this confirms every, everything everybody has been saying. I was naive to not have crossed the street and yeah. God damn it. Like, I just hate these people. Sure. Right. They'll just say, I, it's not that I don't have anything against them. Just, I'm going to cross the, the street. They're fine people, but statistically I'm more likely to be robbed by something like that. No, no, no. Like I was robbed and I didn't, right. I didn't think of black people as being criminal before, but I literally was robbed and I'm never yeah. going to yeah. let my be. desire to not seem racist and cross the street affect right. my willingness to protect myself. And yeah, like black people commit crimes more and I'm going to do like, it is what it is. Like I'm going to adopt all of these racist views now. Or like, for example, I know a lot of, you know, for historical reasons, a lot of times, you know, Obviously, black people were pushed into segregated environments, and oftentimes Jewish people, for anti-Semitism reasons, were pushed into adjacent environments. Mm. And so it also often was the case that the people who owned property and were landlords and stuff in black neighborhoods were Jewish. And so there's this antagonism that comes from a landlord-tenant relationship that gets colored by the fact that it's also a black-Jewish relationship, but the the animus – is intermingled. Like I hate my landlord, but also it's now conforming to all these stereotypes I have about Jewish people. And so it becomes expressed in these anti-Semitic ways. Yeah. I guess I think, and I don't think this is just because I'm Jewish, but I do think there's a difference between someone being like, Oh, white people and Oh, Jewish people. And again, even though I think white people can be Jewish and, you know, white Jews are white Jews, but does that make sense? Uh, Because I feel like there isn't a, there's no like, I'm not worried about some anti-white violence breaking out, mm. nor am I saying that anyone who says the Jewish stereotype is about to engage in violence against a Jew. But I do think that that makes it a little bit different from like, it's almost like a gay person making a joke about straight people obviously is not the same thing as a straight person making a joke about gay people. Uh, I see that in parallel with like, with, with non someone making, like, it's very, to me, there's nothing comparable or they're very, it's very different. Uh, racism, like against a, uh, and again, all these terms get, they're, they're hard to define. But uh, if we're talking about like, yeah, they're just these different axes. And so if you're talking about someone who's just white and they're a landlord and you say something about like, oh, you know, white people, that's different from, oh, you know, Jews. Yeah, well, let's interrogate that because I 
there are people who would argue, and I know this is very fraught what I'm about to say, but there are people who would argue, oh, there was like the knockout game discourse. You yeah. know, there was a phenomenon of people feeling that they could beat up white people because they didn't see them as hu- human. They, you know, all of the, you know, all of the rhetoric about white people being racist caused you to ironically now dehumanize white people as one big racist blob and not individualize them at all. And therefore not feeling guilt about going around bopping up them upside the head or whatever that was about to be about. And that's, that's back to Thomas Chatterson Williams point that maybe we're not there yet in any meaningful way, but there is a risk even among non-Jewish white people that maybe we shouldn't ignore that we are all endlessly dehumanizing each other in a tit for tat way that is ultimately bringing us all down. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's, is that, am I, am I going to be like labeled reactionary if I say that there's something to not dehumanizing each other? No, I mean, I agree that we shouldn't dehumanize each other. Uh, But then that we get back to this question of like, like rightly or wrongly, when I hear some like older black relative say something like, "Ugh, you know how white people are, you know, I don't trust white people or whatever it yeah. is. I don't think of that the same way as if I heard a white person of any age, but particularly an older white person saying something like, um, you can't trust a black person. Yeah, because they're so different. I mean, I, I think that that's appropriate and you should have a double standard because the history is so different the like political violence is so different. Uh, it's almost like in a way it's, it's almost like having a black history month, you know, like, yeah, we shouldn't have a white history month. I mean, you could say that you that maybe having a black history month is tokenizing and blah, blah, but obviously like it would be inappropriate and, and messed up to have a white history month. So I don't think these things are like equal, but opposite. So here's the problem becomes when we're now in a contemporary context I feel like what happens sometimes is that contemporary black people of my age or younger kind of appropriate the experiences of older black people. And mm. certainly there are people who are in prejudicial situations currently. So I don't, this is, I don't mean to overly flatten this, but there are people, you know, the discourse, this is how you get the woke discourse with the people who are, have Tony jobs in New York, writing for the Atlantic, right. talking about, Oh, this violence against my body and all of this stuff and appropriating a kind of a sentiment that would have been appropriate for someone crossing the Edmund Pettus bridge but using it to in the context of so and so followed me in the store while I was shopping or so and so told me to leash my dog in the park or whatever these little microaggressions pop up oh i didn't succeed in the publishing industry because of racism right and all these and suddenly all these white people just become vessels for a kind of anti white you know resentment right. that would be more appropriate in their parents or grandparents generational context yeah. and which yeah. isn't necessarily fair to apply to you know, the 20 year old Vassar copy editor who maybe brought everyone coffee in the room, but you, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I hear that. I do. I do think that that some of that discourse gets like, and those experiences get a little bit trivialized or cheapened. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it feels that's what leads to the sense of oppression Olympics, because if I, as a black person can start saying, you know, 
you know, whatever, you know, I, I have that kind of an elevated level of grievance that I may or may not have in, entirely access to because of the other access of privileges that I have, yeah. then it is going to make other people say, well, hell's bells. You, you've got black stuff. I've got the Holocaust. Let's right. go. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And now we're like, now everybody's just a race. And that's why I ended that clip. It's like, okay, well, fine. Like everyone has a grievance for sure. But if we call it all racism, then what is even the point of the term? If white people can be you, if you can be racist, not prejudiced or bigoted or judgmental or anything like this, but racist against a white person, what does the word racism mean? And is it just coterminous with prejudice? And like, why are we even doing this? Well, what are the limits of the racism term? Like, to whom would you say it should be applied? I don't think in America, where which is 70% white and... um has always been founded in as a legal code that is designed to protect the interest of kind of a white owning male land owning white ownership class, male ownership class that we are anywhere near to a place where you can have because of that power privilege dynamic, people who are like a, a, a cultural mix, like something in the ether, a generalized cultural understanding that white people are inferior to the extent that someone having animus against a white person is about them being white, like about their intrinsic whiteness, as opposed to the fact that they resent the fact that white people have so much power. That's why I'm trying to draw the difference between those two different kinds of racism, because there are people who maybe are unfairly angry at all white people for the crimes of some white people. Yeah. But it's not because they are white and they think white people are stupid or violent or any of these other kinds of things. Right. It's because they think that white people have power and that's irritating because they're abusing it. Yeah. Right. And that's why I don't want to call that racism. That's even if I characterize it as I'm, you know, I'm mad at white people. I'm mad at white people because of the position they hold in society, not because of who they are intrinsically, racially. Yeah. ethnically in their soma you know right okay katie i know that you are time limited so i would love to have you stick around and answer some questions yeah. but i also don't want to hold you up and then i'll, I'll jump off okay so i'm going to take this first one from matt oh matt's gone eric uh you're up let me know what's on your mind what are you thinking about all this hey Bree. um this was a very great interview um, that you did with the two a conversation, I should say, with that you did with the two uh, guests that you had on. Um, the one thing I really wanted to focus on was the the term that Thomas brought up: this idea of monolithic whiteness. Mm. And I found that a very interesting term, and it for the simple fact that sometimes he made it like um, I've had a, he, he brought up a situation because I had a similar situation with a coworker who I referred to as white. And he said, I'm not white. I think he came from some like Eastern European, uh, European country. Hmm. Um, and I always found that interesting because I'm like, well, if you go outside and walk around and we'll walk around together and like, or if a cop comes and stop you, hold up, I'm not white. Just to let you know. Yeah. So I just bring up the question, like, I understand from the, and I think we all agree from the hard sciences that there is only one race. race. None of these other races really technically, biologically, chemically, one race. Mm -hmm. But on the social sciences, we have multiple races. So my question to you, do you think that we, that it, that even though the hard science is there is only one race, but we have this social science 
and our ability to construct all of these identifiers and group ourselves together, that it almost supersedes the hard science. Yes. This is why I like, this is what I said in the, in the conversation with Thomas that I had before, like a couple months ago, that interview, you know, he's like, race is a social contract. I'm like, yeah, sure. But who cares? (laughs) Like none of us here actually think we're like different breeds who can't like mate like zebras and donkey. Like no one thinks that's what we're talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. Like this isn't, we're not, this isn't like 17th century, like pulling out the calipers. None of us are doing that right now. So but it just, okay. Like race is a social contract. Great. Okay. I Like great. <laughs> now what? Cause we all know exactly what we mean when we're talking about groups of people. And Thomas is right that there are these different contexts where, you know, he might not actually be perceived as black and the Eastern European person might actually perceive as, be perceived as something other than non-white. And certainly there's all kinds of stuff that goes down in the Balkans. Mm. That's kind of none of my business to use uh whoopies parlance that, <laughs> <laughs> um, that is a lot of ethnic hatred. That's probably perceived to be racial and like totally, but in America, what was so troubling to me, or so kind of confusing to me, I should say, is the what felt like this out of nowhere insistence that, you know, Eugene Levy <laughs> isn't white. Katie, what do you think? Let him know. Let him know. <laughs> Eugene, are you, are you, how do you identify Eugene? <laughs> you know, like, is, is Cameron, is Cameron Diaz white? I would say yes. Is, is Christina Aguilera white? I would say yes. Right. So, like, it just, it's a weird topsy-turvy world to me where we're like, yes, white Latinas. Totally. But, like, we're all of a sudden, like, complicating, you know, all these, all these, all these other people. Yeah. Because I've always seen that, because I used to be the type of person that says, like, you know, we are all one race, da 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 you should get get rid of all this other nonsense but then i just i'm like i also struggle with the fact that maybe it just is this ideology and i think it's just naturally in us because as humans evolutionary we like to put things in categories we're always going to do that so is the better thing to me is to try to instead of trying to say that there's like the white race the black race blah 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 but instead try to attack it at the root problem which is there's there's no power difference that I, or I should say that this idea of white supremacy hurts white people just as much as it hurt black people. Yeah, I mean, I like I like that kind of narrative. That's the Heather McGee stuff, right? The drain yeah. politics stuff. I like it. I just think it's a better way to go about it because I don't think we're going to be able to get rid of it. And if we are, it's just going to change to something different. So I think it's better served to say like, Hey, white people, you may think, because I think there's an idea, because one of the things that I know he brought up is, or I think I forgot who brought up, when she says that, I think it was Batia, when she talks about Jewish people got pushed into white people, uh, got pushed into the whiteness from like woke leftists. I wouldn't say that. I would just say that they got pushed into, I should say that they attached themselves to whiteness because they how can I put this? They saw how black people got treated and it was like any yeah, form Everybody of ascribes to, uh, 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 yeah. he wants to achieve whiteness. Everybody exactly. does. Not because of like, 
you know, there's like evil inside, but because you live in a system where one group gets it and the other group gets shit. And you obviously want, you hope the hope and dream, the American assimilation dream is to get this subsumed into whiteness. And I would also, just before I cut it, I would also add that as definitely connected when you hear a particular type of black male talk, mm. it seems like all that they really want to do is be white males. Mm. Well, that's a whole, you know, <laughs> I'm not, that's for T and them to debate. I'm not getting into all of that. I'm not getting into that discourse. <laughs> I'm not, I, you, no one's going to come wagging their finger at me, accusing me of randomly coming for black men for no reason. That's not my, that's not my bag. I got you. <laughs> but thank you, Eric. <laughs> you have a good one. You too. All right, Jonathan, you're up next. What's on your mind? And Katie, feel free. Oh yeah, I do. Can I just mention one thing that's yeah, kind please. of unrelated, but I'm trying to uh, thread the needle here. You know, we're talking about different kinds of oppression and we got to talk about class, corporations, corporate power. And you know what that brings me to think about? Non-corporate congressional candidates. You liked the way I did that? And Brianna Joy Gray and I, <laughs> along with Marianne Williamson and Crystal Ball and Juliana Forlano, are going to be hosting non-corporate congressional candidates on Wednesday night at 7 p.m. on all of our YouTube channels. That's right. And I know that a lot of people have a lot of skepticism about being invested in electoral politics at all, which is why this kind of conversation, I think, is important because we will, you know, I will be, I think many of us have those same questions and concerns on the panel and we'll be asking the kinds of questions that we've been asking on bad faith of these candidates. And so far as what style of politics do they ascribe to? Are they willing to be adversarial in the way that the squad has not been? Do they understand the power that they have which these, with these narrow margins? And are they willing to use it? How invested are they in kind of a career in politics? Um, you know, the kind, of, the kind of vetting that we'd like to see given what we've learned from the squad so far and the disappointment of the past year or so. So even if you're skeptical, I encourage you to tune in so at least you can be informed in your skepticism. Right. Yeah. You can drag us. You got to watch to drag us, though. <laughs> drag us, yeah. But anyway, this is a great conversation. So much more to talk about. We'll have to do it again. And if only Whoopi had listened to you, Brie, or us. <laughs> Look, she's still got an open invitation to the pod. I'd love to chat yeah. with either here or on the katie helper show uh yeah and uh, keep the faith everyone and barbara streisand let us know if you continue to all right thanks katie see you thanks so much all right bye-bye all right jonathan unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind hi Bree. thanks for taking my call i really enjoyed listening to today's episode especially because thomas uh returned to the pod to discuss with you. I think um, I really enjoyed your conversation with him last fall as a biracial person. I thought his perspective was super interesting Mm. to listen to. And today um, there was something near the end of the conversation. I was hoping you could expand upon a little bit. Mm. And that was how you noted um, like policy slash legislative redress for a lot of issues facing black Americans tends to come quite slowly. Um, especially compared to other marginalized groups, Mm -hmm. despite the media attention that is placed on it. Like for me as an Asian American, um, the first year of the pandemic, it was really frustrating how there was almost no mainstream media attention given to the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes. Like I think that the first time I saw any coverage of it on like a really big national platform was probably the Salon shooting spree in last March in Georgia, 
And, you know, despite the minimal attention paid, uh, you know, to that issue up until that point, there was, excuse me, the Stop Asian Aid Hack uh, passed that you mentioned in May Mm -hmm. of last year. And there was also, I think I saw in the past month, like three different states perhaps required that Asian American history be taught as part of the public school curriculum. And we can debate, of course, the merits of those actions and whether they're actually efficacious or if they're just symbolic. But, you know, ju- juxtaposing that to the closed door meeting that Joe Biden had with mm-hmm. um, several black leaders basically just insulted them and downplayed their concerns. And, you know, the justice uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is pretty much totally stalled out in the agenda mm-hmm. at this point. So I was hoping you could just give us your take on on why that dynamic exists. Yeah. <sighs> I, I look, I wish I knew sometimes I think it's as simple as there's too many black people. <laughs> so I think it's as simple as, okay, when slavery ended, black people were like one fifth of the population, you know, now we're one tenth, but there's just too many of us to actually pay reparation. I mean, obviously we all know we can print the coin and, and MMT and whatever, but in the public imagination, there's just too many of us to give the amount of money that would be, equivalent to the 40 acres and a mule or whatever your metric is. And therefore it's like a conversational non-starter. Whereas other groups, you know, you know, Bernie voting for Holocaust reparations a few years ago or stop Asian hate or the uh, uh, Japanese interned folks who got uh, reparations, uh, native American, um, you know, reparations of various kinds. There's a, I think sometimes I feel like those things pass not because of like a feeling of relative merit, but just because, the scale of the money is smaller. You know, we're talking about a handful of, you know, um, survivors, you know, or, uh, you know, a genocided, demolished population that's quite small compared to the number of black Americans when we're talking about Native Americans. Then sometimes I feel like, you know, a lot of people believe, especially in the ADOS community, that it's about anti-blackness and that people just don't care about black people. And the Democratic Party also realizes that they're going to have our votes regardless, and there's no need to follow through on promises. And other groups uh, like Latinos who don't vote as solidly in one block as reliably need to be courted more, and so they get more attention. And so when Joe Biden in that closed-door meeting says blacks are out and Latinos are in, I think it's not just about you know Latinos surpassing blacks in the census, but also about the fact that basically you know black voters vote like abused spouses and like there's nothing that's going to shake us <laughs> like if you keep showing up 95 percent for the democratic party why would the democratic party vote for you and look joe biden had the leaked tape no one covered it april ryan covered it as how dare someone leak this tape that you know we should only print things that are uh, uh sanctioned by the white house <laughs> um nobody cared black people seem not to care the people who were on the tape didn't take the opportunity of the leak to say yeah actually we were dissed and that was shitty Sherilyn Eiffel is likely to be made a Supreme Court justice, which may or may not be the reason why she said nothing about the tape after it leaked and blocked me after I tagged her in tweets about the tape, you know, and that's the world we live in. So I I don't entirely know the answer. And I I do want to say that sometimes these conversations get really kind of nativist and gross. And uh, some people who make an argument for why black people deserve more, which I agree with, do so by arguing that other groups deserve less, which I don't think is right. So I don't want any of this to be construed as I don't think Native Americans should, you know, get reparations or I don't think Holocaust survivors should get reparations or anything like that. And this is, again, it came up in my conversation with um, 
the gentleman who's running to unseat Jim Clyburn. I think that sometimes these things are framed in a way that's very anti-solidaristic and counterproductive and sometimes bigoted. Yeah, I remember. I definitely appreciated that you um, sort of pushed back a little bit during that part of the conversation with the congressional candidate. Yeah, I remember things things got a little tense around that point and (laughs) definitely near the end during the reproductive rights discussion. It was definitely an interesting episode. Yes, well, I encourage everybody here who hasn't listened to go back and listen to it and and all of the all of the episodes. I particularly really also did enjoy speaking to Thomas Chatterson Williams last fall, you know, because he's willing to go there and not everyone's willing to go there and have like awkward, difficult conversations that, you know, kind of reveal your own perhaps not good thinking about things or your own biases and implicate your own family dynamics and your own relationship choices and all of those kinds of things. That level of intimacy and introspection is really valuable. So thank you, Jonathan, for calling in. Thank you. All right, Rob, you are up next. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Hey, Bree, just pulling my headphones back up. Hey, Rob. What did you think of all of this? I mean, I, I definitely have a, a lot of thoughts to share on a multitude of, of different pieces. So I, I think that you really nailed it when you said that, you know, so many of these identities are, you know, sort of intersecting and, and overlapping, right? You can be Black and Latino and Jewish, mm-hmm. right? Um, or you can be white and Jewish, or you can be, you know, um, visibly non-white and Jewish. Um, and and these are things that overlap and and are, are flexible based on social circumstances. And so one of the points that I really wanted to bring up is that, you know, you don't always get to self-identify. And this is where, like the previous comment about I'm Jewish, but if the mob chanting Jews was Jews will not replace us were to walk past me, right, they might not clock me. They would think I'm just a white person. Um, or similarly, right, Barack Obama has a black and a white parent, but if he said he was white, right, no mm-hmm. one would really take him seriously on that claim. Mm-hmm. Um, or, right, if, if the Nazis take power, right, you don't get to decide if you are or are not Jewish. They are going to decide if you are or are not Jewish, right? So... Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that that's something that's really important when we talk about how people's race or ethnicity impacts their social circumstances is that it is something that's going to be circumstantial. And I don't think you can, you know, cast super broad nets around a lot of that. Um, What did you think of that? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I, the, the sticking point for me, I mean, what kind of revealed the tension for me, was that instead of making an argument that people really need to care about anti-Semitism, right? Which I don't think would have been controversial. There was this argument that was being made that Jews are white. And the choice, whether whether or not you think that Jews are white, the choice to make that argument instead of, well, anti-Semitism is bad enough without being called racism. You know, Yeah, it's like a red herring or a deflection of, of some kind. It, it changes the premise of the argument. Right. You know, if if someone is attacked for being gay and, you know, hate crime for being gay and suddenly started making an argument about, you know, LGBT people of color, I, I mean, it's horrible that you got hate crime because you're gay. Like, why are you bringing other things into it? 
And, and again, I, I hear myself say that. I'm like, oh, that, it, that, that feels a little like what Whoopi kept saying. I'm like, this isn't about me. Don't bring me into it. <laughs> and, and, and again, I could just completely be making, making that up. But there did seem to me to be this thing where Whoopi was resisting collapsing what she sees as her issues, racial, black specific issues, and perhaps lumping in some other POC, maybe not, and what was happening in the Holocaust. And to her, drawing that line was about saying one is raced and one is the other is not raced when there's other ways to describe those differences or whatever. But it almost did seem to be like Whoopi trying to, I don't know, like preserve the distinction of her own personal grievances, which is what everyone's literally trying to do right now. Everyone and every side of this is just trying to say, I'm being attacked in a very specific way for who I am. And I need you to see that and acknowledge that. And these things are not interchangeable. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Um, And so that that's a reasonable segue into another point that I wanted to make, which is, I think that some of the previous conversation around when it is, when is it acceptable to say one group of people X, Y, Z, and when is it not acceptable to say one group of people X, Y, Z. And I think that, you have to go a little bit deeper into the substance of what's being said and why. So like if we were to take myself and uh, Clyde the Klansman and uh, (laughs) introduce you to both of us, I might be surprised that you are black and a lawyer because I understand that black people in America come from communities that are underserved and faced, you know, uh, a greater number of obstacles and therefore have a lower likelihood of uh, attaining that kind of profession in our society. Um, Whereas Clyde the Klansman would be surprised for, you know, a much more. uh, That I have enough brain cells. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I have enough synapses to pass the bar or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah. And so, so I don't think it's um, fair to say that, um, to, to go to the other one and say, if you're black and you say, I don't trust white people, right? There's one side of your, uh, your steel man that you built of someone who has a strong, right? Marxist cultural understanding of, of power dynamics and, and who is likely to uh, wield power and what they are likely to, to use that power to accomplish and what ends. But there could be another person who's just like, oh, I had some white bosses and they gave me really shitty shifts at work. And so yeah. I don't like white people because of that. Right. And those are those are different arguments. Yeah, and even um, more so, I think most <laughs> black people in that situation about the white boss would rightly or wrongly be presuming that the white bosses were racist. And so you can have an issue with whether black people are over over prescribing racism. But I do think that not liking someone because you feel like you've been mistreated because they're racist is a different thing than you being racist against them you know what i yeah, mean yeah plausible yeah um but I, I i would say that uh I, I think it was a clip you played and not a caller who was on but um i really resonated with the argument that was made of like i'm not interested in quibbling over the difference of racism is when power is involved and racial prejudice is when hateful things are said based on the immutable characteristics of someone's birth right like you know, I'm a white person, so I, I fall on sort of the, the losing end of that argument for whatever it's worth. But, you know, um, I, I it, to me, it feels like a distinction without a difference. Right. Like if someone wants to 
hate me without getting the chance to know me because of the color of my skin. Like, fuck you. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. I mean, my, this is, this is kind of the same thing for me where it's like, you know, instead of, or arguing that Jews are not white, let's just argue that anti-Semitism is an equal grievance to any kind of racial claim. It's in the same situation. It's like, I don't know that I need it to be racism to, you know, that this is part of why we talk about like why liberals de-emphasize class and why it's important to these other axes of axes of power. I think the power dynamic is good if it was actually used. The problem with the power plus privilege dynamic is that the only kind of power, a lot of these kind of to use Batia's, you know, language woke folks adopt is, is racial power and not economic power. So, you know, I had this whole bust up with someone on the internet back in 2018 where I was trying to make this point and they just refused to get it. And I was saying, you know, if Barack Obama, you know, kicks down the door of the raggediest house in Appalachia, looks at the family that's food insecure, hungry, sitting in a cold room with no heat and starts using white racial epithets against them, it's really bad. (laughs) You know, it's really bad. Like, I don't need to call that racist for me to understand that it is extremely cruel and inhumane for the most powerful person in the country to attack people who don't have any power and to erase that reality just because he's black and they're white. I don't, I still don't know though that I need to call that racism Especially because even in the example I described, I didn't necessarily, I didn't make the example one in which, apart from using the epithets, you know, which describe them as white or or white racial epithets, it's not clear that Barack Obama despises them because they are white. His life would suggest that he doesn't dislike white people for being white. His mom's white. He's raised by white grandparents. It would be something and it would be something very bad, but I'm still kind of resisting this idea that I need to call that racism. I don't know. I could be convinced. (laughs) I'm just saying, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really interested in in getting hung up on the definitions, right? I think that they all fall under the the category of condemnable behavior and, and therefore uh, I'm not, I'm not interested in. in Yes, but somebody's interested though, Rob, somebody's interested. And that's what's so curious to me. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Rob. I've said everything I think I need to say, so uh, I'll let you move the queue along. All right. Okay. Uh, Kusha, what say you? Good evening, Brianna. Thank you so much for having me back again. Yeah, of course. So what do you think about this conversation that we're having right now about why there's this investment in particularly racializing grievances? That's very kind of you to ask, and I'd really love to address it because I actually had the opportunity to speak with Katie Halperon on the first time of her call-in program. I'd love to talk about it with you. To begin, I want to say I take issue with the use of the very phrase anti-Semitism to begin with. I don't think it's a particularly apt one to phrase the discussion. Wait, I think why? There's a much, uh, please, if I may finish. I think there's a much more effective and descriptive alternative to this problematically conflating term. I think the word anti-Jewish bigotry is more apt. And moreover, shouldn't we be trying to ingrain that as the relevant phrase for discussions of this nature? Like well, what's the West difference? Field? But I'm going to get into the difference. Please let me. As well, Kusha, West Kusha, Kusha, like, here's the thing, though. I want us to have a conversation. I understand that it's a little bit nerve wracking to call in. I understand that some of you prepare remarks. But I think it's a lot more interesting for the listeners if we have a more organic kind of back and forth. So come, sure, come, 
I'm not nervous. I'm just ready to tell you this information because anti-Semitism essentially includes groups like Assyrians, Arabs, and Mandaeans. They're all Semites. But when people say anti-Semitism, it's not referring to those groups. They're neglected and overlooked. We have 60,000 to 100,000 Mandaeans in the world, 2 million to 5 million Assyrians in the world, and over 400 million Arabs. But when people say anti-Semitism as promulgated by the mainstream media and political establishment, they're not referring to those groups. Further, groups like Assyrians are persecuted very heavily. Assyrians, many of whom are religious, many of the religious Assyrians are Christians. And they're persecuted by groups like ISIS in the Middle East, in Iraq and Syria. Would you call that persecution anti-Semitism? That's a question I want to raise to you. Would you call that persecution anti-Semitism? Or would you call it like Christianophobia? Because this is something that needs to be considered in the discussion. Firstly, that not all Jews are Semites. Because we have like Ethiopian Jews and Ashkenazi Jews. If you look at this uh, journal called Frontiers in Genetics, there was a study published in June 21st, 2017, by Ranajit Das from Manipal University of India, Paul Wexler from Tel Aviv University, Mehdi Piruznia from Johns Hopkins University, and Iran Elahik uh, from University of Sheffield in the United Kingdom that says, quote, our results reinforce the non-Levantine origins of Ashkenazi Jews, end quote. And I'm going to end it here, and then I'd love to get your analysis. That, quote, findings were compatible with the hypothesis of an Irano-Turkish-Turco-Slavic origin of, for Ashkenazi Jews and a Slavic origin Slavic origins for Yiddish and at odds with the Rhineland hypothesis advocating a Levantine origin for Ashkenazi Jews and German origins for Yiddish. We provide additional validation to the non-Levantine origin of Ashkenazi Jews using ancient DNA from the Near East and the Levant, end quote. Please, I'd love to hear your reflections. Yeah, I think this gets to the point that we were talking about before, which is that there is a racial, like a more specific racialized element to what the Nazis were certainly after which does not is perhaps not captured by the word Semite to your point, but which is also, which also excludes people like Ethiopian Jews who are kind of, I think being grandfathered into this conversation as though any of this is about them. And I think it's missing the forest for the trees. And I think it's, I think it's good that you point out the fact that there are more specific definitions of what it means to be kind of ethnically Jewish. I mean, we talked a little bit about it, but there's also, you know, the, the, what is it? The, uh, Cohen gene and, you know, all of the discussion about whether or not Ethiopian Jews, Jews have this gene that da, 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 the Ashkenazi versus other kinds of Jews. I mean, there's all of these kinds of things which are really getting sidestepped in this conversation about Jews are a race because there's so many Jews that don't wouldn't in traditional kind of racialized mm-hmm. understandings of what it means to be a quote unquote Semite wouldn't fall within that. And a bunch of people who do mm-hmm. fall within that that aren't a part of this conversation. So I appreciate you bringing that perspective, Kusha. And thanks for calling in. Yes, I just would like to conclude by saying that Sephardic Jews and Mizrahi Jews very much count as Semites. And if you look at Cornell West, when he speaks about it, and any videos I've seen of him uh, lately, he's very good about saying, quote, we have to be constant and consistent in our critiques of anti-Jewish hatred, end quote. Or that he says, quote, you have to make sure there's no anti-Jewish prejudice, end quote. He's very careful about his words. And I really appreciate that about him. I think that's one thing we should try to do as the left progressive element, and not just the U.S. and the world, but also in the world, to make sure we're very deliberate with our language, because that's what's promulgated and promoted by the mainstream media, by the establishment, and being able to challenge that and raise those questions in how we even describe this problem at hand, because anti-Jewish bigotry is very real, as we saw with the recent hostage crisis 
in Colleyville Synagogue in Texas, where four people were taken hostage, including a rabbi, and the 1994 terrorist attack in a Jewish community center in Buenos Aires, Argentina, during which the Islamic Republic of Iran killed 85 civilians and injured hundreds, an atrocity organized by Ali Falahian, the former uh, intelligence minister. So I just want to bring those to your attention. Thank you very much. Thank you for that. Um, and so next up, Case, you're the next caller. What's on your mind? Hey, how you doing? Um, it's good to be back with you. Um, I, I have not a – you guys went into um, some very good, deep, deep conversation, but I just want to talk about Whippy real quick. Um, mm-hmm. Have you ever watched the movie Idiocracy? I saw it in theaters, uh, uh, I confess. There you go. Okay, I, 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 don't th- I didn't see it in theater, but I definitely saw it. And, um, okay, everybody compares the analogy of Donald Trump being president to idiocracy. But I see, you know, Don Lemon saying that um, Joe Rogan took Iver- horse medicine, you know, mm-hmm. idiocracy. But then we have um, Whoopi Goldberg, who doesn't know pretty much what's this, like, 10th grade history that, of course, the World War II was about uh race racism and, and um towards the Jews. So I'm I'm just looking at a society and, and this is just a continuation. It just proves to me why they need to have Brianna Joy Gray moderate the view and add some you know, the view's supposed to be the, I think Time said is the number one place to get politics. Is that right? Do you, you, you have what, you heard what about what is that? the number one place? Um like the Times, the New York oh. not the New York Times, but I think Times magazine praised the view as like one of the top place to get politics or something well it is i mean everyone can sit around rolling their eyes at daytime (laughs) tv but it gets way more views than rachel maddow yeah Yeah, absolutely right 11 o'clock it's on tv it gets millions (laughs) of people every single day every clip that they put on the internet has like a million views on it at least imagine if they had you as the moderator well you guys need to a hashtag together and start emailing producers i don't know what you want me (laughs) to do like i'm only one woman (laughs) nah i hear you 100 percent but um, I, just to do a quick sidestep, if you don't mind, I, I want to ask you if a certain person, spiritual person, what already decided that they wanted to run in 2024, but of course they're not going to let people know now. Um, I want to ask you, what advice would you tell her to um, that maybe you would have given to Bernie like two years before he ran in 2020 to say, hey, you know, in 2016, um, this happened with the black vote. This is what to do this time around, and of course, don't wait till you're running. Like maybe wait three, you know, maybe start doing stuff now. Do you have any? Uh, I'm just curious if you have any advice for that person. Well, it sounds like you just gave some, which is that mm-hmm. the Bernie campaign needs to start doing black outreach before the campaign cycle. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. that's work that needs to be done years and years in advance. So it's too mm-hmm. late for mm-hmm. everybody for now. So you think it's too late as of right now for 2024? No, it's not too late in terms of it's impossible to win, but the kind of outreach that needs to be done is a multi-decade effort that you can't snap your fingers mm-hmm. and do. People need to start it, mm-hmm. but you either have a relationship with the black community or you don't. You don't manifest mm-hmm. it overnight. Now, okay. I do think that you know there is a lot more to be done to have a good relationship with black media figures. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot more handshaking and amazing that could be done with folks like Charlemagne the God, for instance, mm-hmm. who like him or, or hate him has a great degree of influence in a kind of mm-hmm. black media sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is, you know, I think Marion Williamson has done a great job talking about reparations and some other black specific issues mm-hmm. that give her credibility that to be honest, Bernie at times lacked with black mm-hmm. leaders. 
I want to be really clear, though, Bernie did better with black voters than anybody else in the race except for Joe Biden, was tied with Joe Biden for black voters in February. And I believe the thing that edged Joe Biden out was the Clyburn endorsement and the belief that yeah. that Biden was more likely to beat Trump, having absolutely to do with nothing to do with Bernie's favorables among black voters, which were high. No, so it's I really totally, just an electability conversation. No, I totally agree with you. But um, with um, let's say was, you know, I'm talking about Marianne Williamson, obviously, like, let's uh, say she wanted to court that vote. We do, I think we wouldn't want her to be like in the Pete Buttigieg's position, you know, where he's had absolutely no um, relationship. But I think that you're absolutely right that she gained a ton of points with the reparation. And the last point I'm just going to bring up and then I'll jump off is that I was listening and I don't listen to Roland Martin very often uh, recently. But um, there was a time that I really listened to the show on YouTube and I forgot in what context I forgot the video. But he brought up, he said, hey, if if someone asks me how to get in favor, you know, with the black community, they would go to this particular journalist conference. I forgot what he said. And they would go to this particular magazine. And he did like name. No, they all do that. Everybody goes to the National Association of Black Journalists. Everybody goes to all of those things. And he doesn't, people like Roland Martin, and we should talk about this. I would love to go back on his show again. I did go back on his show in the context of the campaign. And to be Mm. honest, I felt like he was extremely unfair to my position and Bernie Sanders' position, and now he gets to have Joe Biden who doesn't give a shit what black people want. So he's he's reaping what he's sowing. So the idea that he's going to give anybody advice when he spent the entire campaign bad-mouthing any candidate that even had a chance of doing anything to help black people, disproportionately mm. poor people in this country, he has a lot of fucking nerve is what I have to say about that. All right. <laughs> on, on that last note, I hope I didn't uh, piss you off too much. But uh, much love to you, and um, thank you for letting me sidestep real quick. But yeah, definitely... Uh, Appreciate you and much love to you in the chat. Thank you, Case. All right. Uh, Andy, you are up next. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Hi, Bree. I hope you're having a lovely evening. I am. How about yourself? Um, it's, it's all right. Uh, so I just have a couple things. First mm-hmm. off, I won't ascribe any, you know, intentions or motives to Miss Batia or Thomas Chatterton Williams, but it is my opinion that this push by certain interlocutors to racialize the prejudice of uh, groups American society has, you know, deemed white does have this ultimate goal of like minimizing the significance of racism against black people and other minorities Mm -hmm. because if we follow this logic if racism actually affects everyone, is it really as bad as black people and other minorities claim? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, that's that's kind of what I meant when I said if if everything's a racist, nothing race. And And it does feel like at the same time that some people are arguing that what would be did was so harmful because it departicularized the claim that Jews have, the anti-Semitism in particular, or anti-Jewish hate, hatred in particular, by making race racism something that everybody can experience, they are in fact departicularizing the claims that marginalized racial identities have in this country. And it's a really like nuanced kind of impressive dosido that's being done here, but I, I copped it. <laughs> I see it <laughs> and I don't love it. Yeah. And so the other thing is I was expecting, you know, Bachi to come in with the hot takes and well, she delivered. All right. Um, I take issue with her saying in the beginning of this, of that conversation that somehow other groups such as Asians, Muslims, Latinos, immigrants, etc., are claiming a quote unquote stolen valor and trying to join in on an intersectional fight against oppression I agree that the history of oppression against Black people, specifically American descendants of slaves, is unique, and that should never be minimized. 
And now, I won't speak for other groups, but as someone who is a DACA recipient and the son of Mexican immigrants, I would remind folks that there is a history of state-sanctioned state violence against my people in the States. In the 1920s, prior to the Holocaust, Mex Mexicans were being sprayed with Zyklon B and other pesticides any time they were crossing into the U.S. Mm -hmm. And later on in the 30s, the U.S. carried out one of its largest ethnic, ethnic cleansings with the deportation of nearly 2 million people of Mexican descent, 60% of which were actually U.S. citizens. And that's not even speaking on the ICE raids carried out by the past three administrations that have separated thousands of families, as well as the ongoing crises at the border. And to speak to my experience, whether or not that should matter, the legal precarity of my immigration status makes me live in fear of state bodies like ICE. So for me, the idea that I can't leg legitimately have a claim of solidarity with Black people against the oppressive arms of the state is, to put it bluntly, ignorant and offensive. Yeah, it's funny because like whenever I, I, you know, obviously adore Katie and uh, whenever we have this, often we have this conversation, you know, she will say something like, you know, it can't compare and uh, my experience is never the same as black people. And it, and it, and it rubs me a little bit the wrong way because I, I don't, I, as a black person, I don't think that my claim to grievance is dependent on me doing any kind of oppression. It doesn't enter my mind what the relative harm I experience is compared to a Jewish woman or a Latino man or whatever. And even in saying, I don't, you know, you know, even if it's done in this kind of like respectful deferential way, it, to me, I don't know. It's like part of this broader trend where everyone, I don't know. I just don't think that it, there's something anti-solidaristic about it because I do sometimes reflect on how I would feel if I were in another, a part of another group. I often think about the ways that if I were to do an oppression Olympics, I would say Native Americans would win over, you know, beat black people in America. And oftentimes people will say things like, well, black people have had it worse. And immediately my brain flag goes up like, well, what about Native Americans? At the very least, how are we going to forget about Native Americans? And I, and so I, I really hear that point. And I also hear, I also recognize that there is just not as much education about other groups in this country for reasons, including black political power, the population density and all these other kinds of things. And so I, it just seems a little hubristic in the first instance to be making those points when instead we could be making points about our shared suffering under a fundamentally unequal and hierarchical system that is promoting solidarity. So Thank you for raising that, Andy. Yeah, thank you, Brie. All right. Walker, you're up next. What's on your mind? Hey, Brie. Thanks for taking my call. Um, really appreciate this conversation you guys are having on this current podcast, but I've been very close to asking a question the last couple of call-ins, so I'm just, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you something about that. Um, it deals with content creation and something you've kind of mentioned, um, I think, thematically over the last couple of either Collins or like talking with Marianne or Jordan. But um, I think that I've heard from you a lot of like um, challenges you've been facing as far as being a podcast creator and a content creator and like looking for something to, to really fill that void. Um, I'm a content producer myself. And one of the things I wanted to ask you was, what kind of uh, what kind of content do you see in like progressive media, like independent media? Who do you think's like really doing content like really really well? And 
how can I help that faith, like, take it better? Like, where can I send my resume? Because I really, really want to help. Boy, I I don't, I, I, I mean, I think a lot of us like the same shows. I think a lot of us, uh, my podcast suggestions would suggest, you know, like similar people who like Bad Faith also like, would suggest that a lot of you are listening to Katie Halper's show or Useful Idiots and Breaking <laughs> Points and uh, Kyle Kalinske and, uh, I don't know, The Dig or Jacobin Radio, excuse me, or whatever else. Um, and I enjoy those shows. I like smaller channels um, like The Vanguard and, yeah. um, you know, Jay Buffont and, you know, Nick and all of the people at um, – I'm sorry. I know they used to be Fred Hampton leftists and I'm blocking with their call now. Uh, Savvy Sabs and all of them. You know, I, 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 I like all of the Jimmy Dore. You know, I think mm-hmm. there's a universe of things that everyone's basically listening to more or less. And yeah, I agree. Yeah. In terms of how you can support, like, I, you guys really want me to manifest a reality about a independent media network that I just cannot do. I don't know what to tell you guys. I, I don't, I'm not like a, um, a recruit. I'm not a. I'm not a um a, a hiring depot. I get that. I don't. I don't know. I, I don't know. Like I. Well, what, I don't know the, who needs what you, for you what. Mentioned, mm-hmm. You mentioned. You mentioned. I think it was two Collins ago that you were like. Really, one of the hardest things that you have about what you're doing is just like clipping and like posting and like building your YouTube and things like that. But that's something that you know a lot of people have experienced. Myself included, do it. Yeah, so, well, like, if that's something you need some help with, I, I would eventually love to hire people. The idea was always to hire people and grow, but the reality is the podcast is not growing. The patron mm-hmm. is shrinking, and I don't feel comfortable hiring people at this time, so I keep doing it. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Like sure. that. I mean, I don't mean to be. Like, I don't mean what was me. Like it's fine. It's not shrinking at an alarming rate. But when I at the beginning of the month and the patrons drop by a thousand and I'm hustling to get them back up by a thousand by the end of the month and I'm looking, mm-hmm. I'm looking and it's the fifteenth. And we're not where we need to be on the 15th. I, my mind is certainly not on let's hire somebody else. Cause you know, I've given up my real job for this. I'm no longer barred. I didn't keep up my CLEs. I mean, I, I don't mean to make this about me, but I'm just trying to be honest about the situation. I'm yeah. thinking I got to like, who knows if I'll be employable a year from now anywhere. And so in a growth mindset, you know, where the thought used to be, we're going to get a studio and we're going to be able to produce things like, you know, uh, breaking points, Crystal and Sagar do, and it was like growth, growth, growth. Mm-hmm. We can start mm-hmm. to do some of these media things. Well, that's just not the world I live in right now anymore. So yeah, I, 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 I would, I would love for that to be the case. And I'm really hoping that someone with more resources, like maybe Andrew Yang, I've heard is trying to start a media empire. Maybe breaking points will grow and get bigger. Maybe, maybe some of these other people with resources will expand or combine in interesting ways to form like a. Um, what do you call it? Power Ranger style mega <laughs> left <laughs> thing. Yeah, I hear. But um, between my poor executive function skills and my low level anxiety about like what the future holds, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm right now our, my producer Ben is going to take a three month hike through like the Himalayas or something in the spring. Mm-hmm. And all I'm doing is trying to find someone who can keep the podcast going, <laughs> keep sure. editing videos yeah. in that interim. Like that's, I'm just, it's like stasis is where my mind's at, unfortunately, right now. And I, the reality is I think people need to to feel a certain degree of security to 
grow. And that's where you get like venture capital firms like Colin, who have a lot of money able to invest in these kinds of things and hire people to have the infrastructure and do this sort of stuff. And there's just not that same kind of money on the left, except for a few people who have done very, very well because they put out great content. Like Breaking Points, I think, does an amazing job. Yeah, I think they do too. But I also don't think that it would take the level of resources that you are anticipating in your mind in order to produce something similar to what Breaking Points is doing. Like you really don't, like I love their, I listen to their show like pretty much every time they put it out. I love that they use a studio, but you don't need to do that. Like the benefit of using uh, digital media is that it's so democratized and it has pulled the barriers of entry down for so many people that you can, you don't, you can have a Taylor Lorenz 500K follower TikTok. You don't need a studio for that. And I know that like TikTok is something you- I have to do it. Like, no, you just have to shoot it. You need an editor that can cut it, that can post it, that can format it, that can, that can clip it. Like, it's not like, it doesn't have to be all on you. And I think that that's something that I totally hear what you're saying about your um, anxieties with, with everything, with like, growing in and stuff. But like, your best skill set is being a podcaster and like doing the thing that you're really, really great at. Like, I wouldn't expect you to also know how to be uh, a social video guru, like to do all of those things. Like that's what people like me or other people that are similar to my background in the entertainment industry and like working in digital media, like we do that. Like we don't need I you mean, to do both. Maybe you're right. But my feeling and my observation of social media is that people who are outsourcing it in that way do not have good social media. They are celebrities who are already famous for whatever reason. And they just push out notifications about their new movie or whatever. But the people, you know, Andrew Yang talked about this when he was on the podcast, how he made a decision at a certain point just to start doing his own tweets. And that's when his social media presence really took off because people can sense that kind of authenticity. And I just I'm having a hard time thinking of the world where I'm just like randomly filming. Hey, you know, student debt should be canceled in my apartment in a way that's genuinely low effort, but also could Mm -hmm manifest into something that is interesting either i'm going to put the effort in and record something that i think is going to be interesting which takes effort like there's no there's no such thing as a free lunch like when i sit there for 20 minutes and think about the how to phrase the tweet for the episode i'm posting the next day it does better than when i don't when i'm it's late at night and i'm just pushing it out because i know i need to set the tweet for 8 30 in the morning and go to bed you know Mm -hmm. And the the results are there. So, like, I'm, I do think I'm sorry. I do think it's kind of a fiction that there is a version of a very low effort for me that manifests in good results and in, in, in big significant results. Well, I mean, I'll, it's it's more about, like, using the efforts you're already utilizing. So, like, for example, with your with one singular episode, instead of posting only one video, right? Well, you we talk about so many. Three. Okay, sorry. You instead of using just three if it's an hour-long conversation that's so much that you're covering that's so much you're getting out there that's so much that you could clip out showcase like reformat like it's really it chopping it up is the first thing that you could do but then you can do like uh teasers into this do stuff like that like utilize your community platform on youtube like there's so much that could push growth in different ways but like again i don't I wouldn't expect you or any other podcaster or anything else to kind of know the ins and outs of everything and like new emerging platforms. But I, I always, all I was just trying to say is, is that um, I really appreciate what you do. I think you have a great voice. I think bad faith is fantastic. I've been listening since the beginning and if you need some help, I'd love to help.
Well, Walker, send your resume over to Bad Faith. Bad Faith, whatever the email address is. What's it's the on email? the website somewhere. Okay. Uh, what is our email? Badfaithpodcast at gmail.com. Okay. That sounds great. I'll try that then. Okay, because right, I like what you're saying. I'm picking up what you're putting down. And we are technically, I mean, Ben's already found some names, but we are technically hiring right now. So, <laughs> Okay, cool. All right, well, <laughs> Thank I'll you, let Walker. you get some more callers. Thank you so much. All right. Oh, we've got Walker and then Johnny. We've got a whole whiskey situation happening. How you doing, Johnny? Unmute yourself. Hello. There you go. What's oh, crackalacking? Oh, man, this is a dream come true. <laughs> You know, it's funny because my people are from Ireland and you mentioned whiskey and um, <laughs> it's called Ishkewe in, in Irish, in the language, but we can anglicize it just like we do a lot of things. And I think that kind of ties into the titles that we use and how that really affects personal lives. You know, so like we could call people black, we could call people Jewish we can call people all these titles, but I'm wondering if there's a case to be made about a hierarchy. Because as you know, all of these spectrums that we've been talking about are subject to the same healthcare regime in this country. So part of where I get to is like, you know, I come from a people who were oppressed for 800 years and the potato famine wasn't about a bunch of dumb farmers who didn't know to grow anything besides potatoes. It was that every other food source was being taken from them systematically. Mm. And the only thing that was left to them was potatoes and there was a famine. And so a lot of people, 75% of the people in the County of Ireland where my people are from died. And the rest of the 25%, most of them had to move to London or to New York City or Boston, and that's kind of like where we got started. So I'm not going to pretend like r racism or race is about skin complexion, because if you're in a certain place in the world, you're going to adapt to that environment. And so people in Africa have adapted by getting a different pigment like ratio than other people in different places, because people... Wow. Are Johnny, what? you adapted to lose your pigment. We were here. We were first. <laughs> yeah, but but then but then what happened? Some people chose. They they made a choice to go north, where they had winters, where they had, you know, colder climates and Less things like vitamin that. Vitamin D, and you needed to have more transparent skin to get it. Yeah, to get your was, vitamin D made. Uh huh. Exactly. And so from there, what happened? Well, you could say people from Africa were stolen from their land. Well, people from Ireland were. You know, we were choosing between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. I mean, you're choosing between a douche and a turd sandwich. And I hate to preach South Park, but I mean, they, they make a lot of valid points about <laughs> democracy and, <laughs> you know, all the things we run into. So I, I guess most of my question is about hierarchy. And if we're allowed to talk about, you know, health care for all, Medicare for all versus trans rights and rights for certain races rather than we're all pretty poor. I mean, you included talk about your student debts. I mean, it's a pretty universal conversation. So I wonder if there's a unifying conversation to be had or if we need to really get down to the root of all of these racial issues 
And then we can uniformly get together afterwards. So there are a couple of things. First, I am interested in this idea that even though so often when people raise the history of uh, the persecution of various now considered white groups, whether they're Irish or Italian or what have you, they're often, some people are often raising it to diminish the ongoing inequities that black people experience in America. However, I'm interested in the idea that talking about those histories could be a jumping off point for solidarity and um, kind of shared grievance in the same way that some people say all lives matter in a way to diminish black lives matter. But of course there's a perfectly good faith way to say all lives matter. So why doesn't mine? Right. Like it, you, there have been all of these instances where there have been, you know, black lives matter advocates da, 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 talking and accidentally saying all lives matter because there is something kind of intuitive about saying that. Right. And it right. doesn't, it's not necessarily, meant to undermine Black Lives Matter the same way I think that talking about the potato famine, you know, you know, is, is intended to diminish the claims that other groups have, have, are making in America. Okay, so that's one thing. I'm, I'm open to that, and I think it's interesting. I am not as keen on the idea of saying, why are we talking about these particularized racial or gender or sexuality differences? Because we're all poor. Because that, again, is doing the thing that I would agree with Batia was harmful about what Whoopi said, which is flattening the discrete experiences of different groups that are not all solved by being poor. And while most certainly the ways that, let's say, transphobia often manifest would be ameliorated in part by not having poverty, you know, i.e., you know, one in every five trans kids ends up being homeless. There's the highest incidence of homelessness among any other group, all of these other kinds of things. It certainly would help the experience of people being ostracized because they are trans to not have to be homeless, et cetera, the same way that if you're black and being discriminated against, it would be helpful if you still could find an apartment and still could be employed and still could get into school and all these things. You know, the way that, that, that racism is manifested is often along these economic lines. Right. It is not the case that simply for solving for poverty, all of those problems go away. So someone who is beat up on the street for being trans or hate crime for being Asian or whatever it is, it's, that can happen regardless if you're the richest person in the world. And, right. But so the, the juxtaposition to that is, isn't it a privilege to be identified immediately by your skin color? And what's the difference between skin color and race? You know, I need to say my last name is Horahan between people before people say, okay, this kid might be Irish, but when there's a first glance at you or people of your complexion, it's obvious that you come from African descendants, but so do we all. So, What's the difference between that oh, and well, I mean, <laughs> there's some you know tens I'm not of hundreds of thousands that... of years of <laughs> of differentiation that caused us to to look this way, and we, I mean, look, race isn't real, but it means something. 
Of course, and that's what I'm we saying. We all started as in well Africa doesn't that... erase the reality of what of what race means societally, societally today. Yeah, but so from the point of people in Ireland is the north of Ireland is still fighting for an independence that has been colonized for 800 years. And so the same colonization that took over Africa is the same colonization that took over a lot of the world. So I'm not saying that your race or my race is more or less important than the other, but what I'm saying is how can we triage these things to make it unified so that we're not arguing about pronouns and we're not arguing about who said what, but rather how do we, why do you keep bringing that stuff into like you and I can see here's, here's another way you could have said this, Johnny, you could have just said, I, I respect your grievance, Brianna, partly because I have my own history of grievances and together let's work to make, to, to ameliorate some of the worst effects of prejudice against our groups by fighting for economic equality together. That is a solidaristic statement, and it one, it's one that sidesteps some of these culture issues that might get people not on board our train. But when you go out of your way to say, why are we talking about pronouns? Look, there's no pronouns in my bio. I'm an older millennial. Some of this stuff goes over my head. I admit it. I'm learning. I'm growing. But, like, I, I don't understand this urge, this need to go out and say, why are you complaining about your thing? Let people – like – I, 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 because I care about other people, even if I don't sometimes understand other people's issues, even if I might even privately feel like my issues are more important than their issues. If someone comes to me telling me their problem, if my partner comes home at the end of a hard day at work, I don't sit there and say, okay, but my day is harder. So that's not a compassionate response. So I would just urge you, like, I, I hear what you're saying, but there's just no need to randomly bring in, like, if, if you don't want to have a conversation about pronouns, when you're door knocking, or you're trying to get people to vote for whomever the next progressive candidate is or whatever's going on locally wherever you live, then I think that's a strategic consideration that each one of us have to make. India Walton said this when she came on the podcast, that she doesn't foreground some of those culture issues herself when she's on the stump or knocking doors. But I also don't want to be in a place where we are vilifying people that have discrete issues, which are important to them, and which are frankly important. Because they are third rail issues. Just keep it to yourself. Like, just don't bring it up if you don't think it's context appropriate. But I don't like you and I are talking right now. I don't see there's any reason to be like maligning pronouns in this conversation. Well, truly, truly, I guess what I'm saying is kind of a reflection of what I've heard you say before, which is that although there are certain grievances that could be made, if you know, like one of the examples that you've brought up recently that I've heard is, if I'm understanding it correctly, is that somebody in the crowd of a Bernie crowd was saying, hey, you guys, let's pay attention. And somebody in the crowd said, hey, if you address us as you guys, that's not very affirmative to how some people may feel about their sex or gender. Ignore them. But we cannot have this kind of reactionary politics where we act like the biggest issue for Bernie is there was one annoying person in the crowd. Come on, guys. Bernie didn't lose because someone in some crowd outside of Amherst decided to try to do like their gender seminar in the middle of the of the crowd. Like it is it is it can be both true 
that in an ideal world, we wouldn't have such gendered language. And also true that 99.9% of people don't really know about that or care, and that we're all there to fight for Medicare for all, and probably we should all just keep our picadillos to ourselves. Both things can be true, you know? So why is that the focus? When there's a million and one reasons why Bernie lost that are substantive. Well, I hear you, and that's where it kind of proves my point, where I said something about gender pronouns, and that's all you picked apart about the entire thing that I no, said. No, I, I think that – no, because my real grievance is the one that suggests that there is this urge to compare Irish persecution and the persecution of black people and other groups in America and the conflation – You know, there is no race and the flattening of racial harms and we're all one from Africa. All of that I didn't love, I got to say, Johnny. But I, you know, I, I, I'm picking my battles here and trying not to pick the one that is more close to me and emotional for me. I, I was actually just trying to pick the lower hanging fruit that was going to cause less of a of an issue. But the, that that thing is that the way that you framed, the way that you framed, and first of all, I did address this. The whole first part of my response to you was all about the Irish potato famine stuff and the and the race stuff. And I said to you, I'm open to the idea that talking about white ethnic grievances, even though I, I probably, I wouldn't call that a racial grievance. I would call it an ethnic grievance, but maybe people would, maybe, maybe, you know, Irish people racialized in a way that I don't understand by English people. And that's, that's my bad. Feel free to correct me. In the contemporary context, you know, I would also say Irish people are white, but I, I, I certainly am open to the idea that we should, we could talk about our shared grievances as a moment for solidarity. What I don't, what I'm not open to is the idea of saying, I have a grievance too, so why are you talking about your grievance when we could be talking about Medicare for all? Because some, something that happened, with all due respect, in, in a more historical context, is not comparable to some of the fights. It should not be compared, rather, to some of the fights that are ongoing because ultimately what purpose is it serving? It seems to be serving the purpose of saying, let's not continue to fight to end qualified immunity or to end the two, you know, to get uh, to decarcerate our country, which has 25% of the world's prison population and is disproportionately black and brown and all these other kinds of things. You know what I'm saying? I, no, I, absolutely. And, and I totally hear that there is something very specifically unjust about the fact that people were brought here and they were brought here and just and persecuted for specifically their their race being the color of their skin. I, I'm not denying that there's slavery, that there's descendants. But I'm not of even slavery. talking about slavery. Do you notice? I'm very because back in the past, as back in the past, and you have a back in the past grievances, and black people have back in the past grievances. I'm talking about now. I'm talking about this weird conflation of the Irish potato famine and people right now here fighting about George Floyd and stuff. I mean, that's yeah, well, well, okay. Ta- so, you're you're so talking from, about. From, Let's talk about Medicare for all and not other kind of racial grievances. And my point is that there are ongoing racial grievances for racial minorities in this country in the way that I would argue there aren't ongoing racial grievances for Irish people in this country. That could very well be true. Just like when Irish people were here, there's Irish need not apply. So the point that I'm making is that Mm -hmm. I have a friend who was shot by the police. Mm -hmm. That, That was a white, white skinned friend of mine. Was that because he was rich? Because he was poor, because he was white, or because he was black. I think it was because the socioeconomic situation he found himself in was because he got shot by the police. And they they, they wanted to dissolve the police system in that specific town because there were so many police for the amount of people who were there. But they decided, well, what's the harm? I mean, we kill one kid out of a thousand. What's the big deal? So I'm not saying that there isn't specifically something unique about 
the grievance in which every single person who finds himself in this country, I mean, who in this country really belongs here besides Native Americans? That, that is a real question. And so how do we find that everybody else who came here because of force, because of rape, because of grievance, because of slavery, how can we unite? And that's kind of what I'm asking is, is there a hierarchy or do we find a unity between all of us who do have grievances? Do we connect over the grievances or do we find that there's something beyond our grievances that connects all of us and that's how we really unite? Well, firstly, I'm very sorry to hear about your friend. And I would agree with you that there is a real missed opportunity um, when you talk about when we talk about police violence to highlight the extent to which a lot of libertarians and folks should get on board with the fact that this is a real abridgment of people's rights across the board and not solely a racial justice issue. This is a point that my former colleague at The Intercept, Zed Jelani, brings up a lot that the biggest predictor of being a victim of police violence is socioeconomics with with with, um, you know, 100 percent of instances happening in neighborhoods where the average income is under a hundred thousand dollars a year and zero percent of incidences happening in neighborhoods that are over two hundred thousand dollars a year. Now those are big right. gaps and big numbers. But I, I really hear you there. And again I think there's political opportunity there. But the only thing I will caution you to say is there's a difference between saying, let's ignore all of our respective grievances or we have there's a hierarchy of grievances so that we can focus on our shared things. And simply saying we have grievances that are different and specific and that matter. And because of those, in addition to those, we are going to fight for the things that overlap and which we share. And you can say that and do that without minimizing anybody else's particularized claim. That's all. I think you can, you can say, you know what? Respectfully, pronouns are not my issue. Maybe I don't even really understand trans issues. That's on me, my bad. But I still respect you as a human being. And there's a lot of things that we both need, including Medicare for all, which under Bernie would have covered, you know, uh, gender affirmation surgery and whatnot. Perfect. Now we're on the same page without me having to let a single word out of my mouth about how I don't really care. Like I'm not invested in your issue. Do you know what I mean? Certainly, certainly. But the, the grievance that was brought up in this podcast in this episode was about race was about do we really have a difference is race only skin pigment is there something beyond that that really defines race well no first of all nobody's talking about skin pigment. i feel like johnny you you injected the skin pigment thing into the conversation there are obviously visual markers that people use to decide race but it's not all skin pigment well, that, well, we haven't certainly, had a conversation but, about what it actually means. We, that has not been that door has not been opened. Well, certainly, but I mean, are you going to tell your guest earlier that nose size is going to be a judgment for Judaism, or is it going to be belief in unique personalities? And I think that's kind of what we're struggling with: is can we all have a unique personality, even though some of those unique personalities are shared with race, with history? with certain ethnicities, but how can we kind of form together? And, and I hear what you're saying. I was like, why did I bring up pronouns? Why did I bring up race? Why did I bring up skin pigment? And I think it's because we're not talking about Medicare for all still. It's, it's a huge issue, and yet we're still divided into what Joe Rogan said. We're still well, we are talking it. about Medicare for All. I did an interview with Ash Kara that'll be out on Thursday about why he didn't force a vote on the California Medicare for All bill. I feel like 
I got to say, I feel like I do a lot of content on the serious issues, but if I ever for one second talk about anything else, it becomes a torrent of why aren't you doing X, Y, and Z. At the same time, you guys are all going over onto other channels, clicking and watching the videos on the not serious content, and then be like bemoaning the fact that people aren't doing serious content. You guys can't have it both ways. Okay. Uh, so, I'm just going to say that don't let me in there. I spent my last $5 subscribing to patreon because i truly and 100 percent believe in what you're doing in the platform that you're hosting glenn greenwald is a hero of mine chris hedges is a hero of mine i just want to remind people that chris hedges learned spanish he learned arabic he lived in different countries he did a lot of stuff to forward the conversation that we're having right now so just because he didn't have a perfect spoon feedable answer as to what we can do it doesn't mean that he hasn't helped this entire scene. And I totally agree with what you're saying, but I think some of the context in which people don't understand is that you went to law school. You've put in so many hours of your life to forward this conversation. And so when people ask, like, oh, what do I do? Where do I click? Where do I send my money to? It's more of a conversation of how do you shape your life? And I think that if you can discover race like I have, as far as Jerry Adams and people who've gone on hunger strikes and people who've gone through real struggles for political equality and recognition, the race is important. And in other ways, race can divide us. And that's exactly what's happened for centuries is that we've been divided over our differences rather than uniting over the things that unite us. And it's unfortunate that the thing that unites us is we're all pretty fucking poor and, you know, life sucks in a lot of ways, but here we are and we're talking and the fact that you're on call-in right now, that's a third-party source. That's not YouTube. That's not Facebook. You're doing your own thing. So I think that's so encouraging and I'm going to stop it here, but well, I no, think no, Jenna, so I, much. I really appreciate you. Don't, but hold on for a second. I just want to yeah. um, just say to you that I, I think that you're right about the the possibility for anything to divide us. But I don't think it's that race is divisive. If there were no race, people would make it up. Look at the, you know, um, look at, look at, look at Rwanda, you know, people just will make shit up, you know? So it's not that we have to ignore race or pretend things don't exist. What we have to do is evolve strategies. The differences are going to exist. The problem isn't the differences. It's the way that people are weaponizing the differences to split people up. And I would just really urge you, like, I, I feel like this is my role in some ways on the left you guys know I defended all of the white Bernie bros up and down, left and right and center about all of these accusations. But sometimes you guys don't make it easy for me when we have these kind of conversations. And I say this to you. I, I really want you to know that I'm saying this with compassion and not judgment. But I'm just – I think this is an important point for people to understand. Whatever you think about what you should be able to say, you are never going to get black people and other minority groups, racial minority groups – to get on board with a program where there is even a whiff of the perception that you are minimizing their particularized racial claim. You can think that that's not fair. You can think that that's not right. But the beauty, the beautiful thing is the acknowledging someone's particularized claim, be it because they're a racial minority, because they're LGBTQIA, whatever it is, is not at all in conflict with fighting for Medicare for all and the other things that are shared values. All you have to do is say, Johnny, I am so sorry about what Irish people suffered in the potato famine. 
It's horrible. In fact, because of my own experiences as a black person, I feel that pain deeply and I am livid that your ancestors and your family had to go through that. And I will fight side by side with you to make your life and your contemporaries' lives as good as I possibly can. Let's put our heads together and make the world better. And at no point do I have to compare our experiences. At no point do I have to say, well, I think that it was a long time ago. Everyone needs to stop talking about it. At no point do I have to say anything else about how I feel about anything else. Just keep it to yourselves <laughs> and, and find the point of commonality and just speak those truths out into the world. And, and the rest will become irrelevant. That's, okay. that's my only advice. Well, th- thank you so much. I mean, I think you're speaking a lot to humanistic psychology and nonviolent communication with Marcel Rosenberg. And I also feel like a lot of where I come from is trying to just save time because I feel like I recognize a history of 400 years of enslavement, of 800 years of Ireland being colonized by England. And I think about all the history and I think about all these things. And it gets so hard to just immediately empathize with the fact that being of a certain persuasion, whether that's be trans, whether it's Jewish, whether that's Irish, whether it's black, whether that's anything, has a certain stigma in any culture, no matter what. And I really appreciate what you're saying because empathy really does save time and it does sound inconvenient, but it's not. And I mm. really, truly appreciate your nudging me to get to the core of what I'm saying, because I've practiced this. I've thought about this for weeks. I mean, mm. my mom had to send me an iPhone for me to even participate in this conversation. I oh, mean, wow. it's not it's not an easy thing. She had to wait for an upgrade so she could get a new phone and send me her old phone. I was on an Android. I was listening to this on a computer and I was waiting for a moment to just be a part of the conversation in this country. And I just truly, truly appreciate you hosting this and you hearing me out and you engaging with me and not being like, this motherfucking Irish person doesn't understand <laughs> what it's like to be black. You know, let me tell you what it's like to be black. Cause honestly, like, let me tell you, my, my dad was a truck driver and his dad was a truck driver, but his dad was part of the Teamsters and his dad was part of the union. So when my dad started to be a truck driver, he thought it was the coolest shit he could possibly do it for his family. And the one thing I can say is that what he brought home was he went to California and he came back and he played Tupac for me. He played California Love. And he said, this is real music right here. Because he grew up with Earth, Wind & Fire. Mm-hmm. And he never heard anything so real, so passionate. He never heard so many people so connected with the music before. So I think it changes. And I think of, you know, how we're not ready to have a black president. And I think about how much injustice is happening. And I think about how connected I am to black culture because i've been systematically oppressed in so many ways as an irish person in ireland in the united states it's much less so now in this generation but i feel so connected so i really want to help and i want to be a part and i want to participate but i also don't want to leave i don't want to lose the authenticity of where the fight is coming from and so i'm finding ways that i want to connect but i also don't want to make it about me because it's not about me and it's well, not no, about it, my it, persuasion. It kind of is. And I really appreciate you offering a little bit of biography. I think it's important to know where people come from because sometimes I think that our empathy can be – a lack of em- empathy can come from – I mean depersonalizing and otherizing people is a lot easier when you don't know anything about them, right? So right. I appreciate your vulnerability. And I really do appreciate you willing to go back and forth with me because I think this kind of 
dialectic <laughs> really is helpful because so many of the things that you're saying, I think, are shared by a lot of folks who are probably listening in, in a broader context that I hope this podcast reaches someday. Hashtag like and share. Um, but, you know, I, and I really do. I'm really humbled by what you went through to be able to participate. I know the column people are working on getting Android accessibility, but I, I, I'm like, I'm humbled by it. I know I kind of went off on um, Walker before, and I just want to say that it's not Walker's fault. He's right. I get overwhelmed, and that's none of anybody's business and not anybody's problem. But I sometimes do feel overwhelmed by, like, the responsibility. And I do feel like, well, what am I supposed to do? This just all happened. <laughs> I didn't, right. like, set out to be a podcaster or anything, and I don't know what I'm able to do. And I'm just learning and figuring out as I go along. And I do feel overwhelmed. I will say that. I get overwhelmed. And I feel like, well, I just need trying to maintain the status quo, which is not helpful politically or professionally. <laughs> so I just, I do thank you guys for pushing me as well. And I'm sorry that I'm not always a vision of grace. <laughs> you know, you, you always are because you're a realistic view of what's actually happening and not what my personality thinks should happen or what the ideals that I have engendered should be but you are a root to what's actually happening. And I think you're a connective tissue into the politics that actually creates the system that it affects our lives. So I, I, I can't thank you anymore and I will support you to the end, no matter if I disagree with your agreements or, or what you say, even though I don't, I'm not saying that, but I agree with the platform that you're making, which is truth and free speech. And I can't, argue with anything that you're saying so i truly appreciate you and thank you so much for having me on thank you johnny i appreciate you all right jeez jez you're up at bat and meet yourself and let us know what's in your mind hi Bree. it's gez gez nice to meet hey. you guys hey thanks um, yeah i wanted to bring up i think there's a good faith way to i guess struggle with these questions of um, these groups being considered white, like Jewish or uh, someone was talking about a friend who earlier they called and said, like an Eastern European friend who said, oh, well, I'm not white. Mm -hmm. and I, I do appreciate that uh, sometimes that's done in ways to, you know, throw a wrench in so, some of these more important things. But there's... Um, you know, when, when we talk about whiteness, it's a really big category, I guess. And I understand that there are some aspects of it that have to do, you know, very clearly with appearance. Mm -hmm. But doesn't it seem like there are some things attached to what it's come to mean that are um, kind of beyond that? It, is that just my perception? We'll say uh, more. What do you, what do you think? Well... Well, I know people bring up the thing a lot with the, um, you know, uh, the police officer and how two people present. And that's that's kind of a, an easy and obvious one in that sense. It's like, well, what you see is white or not. But, you know, say you you come here and you to America and you sort of understand what the different groups are, how things are distributed. And and then there's this category whiteness. Uh, white and it doesn't just mean you know your skin pigmentation it it's associated say with um um 
colonialism or you know what I mean? All these things that aren't exactly physical. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so if you say come from, you know, say an ethnic group that, you know, just has absolutely no history that has anything to do with that. Now, I'm just saying that there's a good faith way to, to think about this. I, I'm not saying it's right or these people are right mm-hmm. to, to they yeah. might be wrong. If like someone might teach them their history and say, oh, you know, you, you might think because, you know, uh, you know, you're Bosnian or this, but mm-hmm. actually, and maybe, but. Well, let's, let's take like, um, uh, was it Kusha's example of, yep. of, you know, people who are Semite, you know, quote unquote Semites who aren't really aren't Jewish and aren't being lumped in when we're talking about anti-Semitism. Talk about people who are technically Aryan by whatever, like 17th century skull measures estimation, who we right. now would think of as middle, you know, Middle Eastern or South Asian, you know, right, right, you know, the caught from the caucus, caucuses, and that's certainly not. I mean, that's not what we mean. Like, no one's looking at some South Asian person and saying, "Oh, that person is white." At the same time, so there, there does seem to me to be like clear physical. You know, it might be blurry on the edges, but clear physical limitations on who gets to be white. However, mm-hmm. it's not just physical, right? Because you can imagine someone who, let's say, came from Eastern Europe and maybe is a little tanner, a little darker haired, a little bit on the edge. And that combined with an accent and a way of dress and an economic status will make the person code is not white. But then one generation later and the accent is gone and the attire has changed. The way you cut your hair is different. And, you know, sometimes people get taller when they come to America because of fluoride <laughs> and milk true. and all that stuff. That's and suddenly true. you're looking like a whole different kind of a thing. However, one of the places this has been a really interesting conversation is um, Asian Americans. And, they, you know, given the trajectory of economic progress among at least some Asian Americans, you would expect them to kind of, quote unquote, achieve whiteness the way that a lot of other groups have. But the fact that they have not, and no one thinks of, you know, Japanese Americans, for instance, as white, again, points to the fact that there are these physical limitations about who can be subsumed and not. There are Latinos who can be subsumed into whiteness, right? Like there's, I mean, again, we were talking about Cameron Diaz and Christina Aguilera earlier. Didn't really even occur to me that Cameron Diaz might be Latina until I was a very grown adult. And I was like, oh yeah, Diaz. Yeah, sure. I guess that's going on there. Um, but not, you know, an Asian American person. Right. It, so, but I'm just saying that the, it, it sounded at some point like you were saying, um, you know, like you were being gaslit or that some Jews were doubling down or almost as if um, they weren't really believing that, yeah, that's what I mean by good faith. Like, I see what you're saying. Th- 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 there's a way to, to really wonder of, about this, where, where you're like, um, that. so whiteness is all of these things. Well, some of them don't really match up. And I think maybe that's where some of the conflict might happen. Mm-hmm. So, and so they might be wrong, if, it, it, but um, there are some questions there. They're like... Um, that's all I'm trying to say. You know, I, I, I will admit to having a little bit of Whoopi Goldberg brain. As a black person, I will admit to having a little resistance to people who get to pass 
you know, kind of what feels a little like opportunistically asserting their non-whiteness. And maybe that's not fair because I do think that you're right. I think there's some good faith, you know, people, you know, good faith arguments where people really, you know, Jewish people are really not thinking of themselves as white. And certainly, like I alluded to earlier, there are parts of the country where being Jewish is really treated and is anomalous. You know, sometimes you can forget that, you know, I think those are like 2% of the population. Because, I mean, because where I'm from, that those numbers are not like that, you know. Right. Um, so I, I, I don't, you're right, I don't want to pretend that every single, you know, Jewish person obviously who's, who does not see themselves as white is doing so as some part of some, like, insidious project to, you know, erase race so that, you know, all of our claims can be equal and they can have more status in the oppression Olympics or something like that. You're right. And I should clarify that. At okay. the, at the same you- I'm, you know, I guess this is part of the part of my brain that does have this weird sympathy with what I think that maybe Whoopi was trying to get at, which is, I don't know, man. No one doesn't think that Barbara Streisand's white. (laughs) (laughs) And part of it is because I'm specifically saying Barbara Streisand because she's this incredibly mainstream, but very publicly Jewish figure. You know, she's, she's, you know, she, she plays you know, the fact of her being Jewish is, is often central in many of her movies. You know, the one with Robert Redford, the whole kind of, you know, Star is Born, the whole thing is kind of like, oh, well, what's a shiksa like you doing with a, you know, per, you know with a Jewess like me? I don't know if you call men shiksas. I'm sorry. We need Katie here to, like, correct my shit. But, you know, like, that's kind of the whole point of that movie is that, like, he's, 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 you know, it's like the funny face, all of those movies, you know, she, that's part of her whole thing. And then to suddenly in this moment be like, yeah, she was very, very, you know, like her Jewishness was such a big part of her identity and what made her so like charming and alluring a lot of these movies to someone like me who like loves to root for the underdog and like an ethnic minority. But like at at the same time, I was literally rooting her for her because she was an ethnic minority as a Jewish woman in these, you know, classically, you know, Gentile Broadway kind of situations. Right. I was never not thinking of her as white. And that's my own limited American perspective. And I think that's what we'll be is working with too. And I will own that. And I can own that I am incorrect in some instances. So I, I, I appreciate you raising that. All right. Right on. Thank you. All right. We're at 10 o'clock. So Miss Mary, Miss Mary Mack, you're going to be our last caller of the day. I'm sorry, Eric, Ryan, Jacob, Wyatt, Rika, Zach, Chris, all of y'all. I'm really sorry, but two hours. <laughs> that's fair enough how are you doing miss mary mack i'm good how are you i'm doing well um first of all i want to say you have the patience of a saint and um <laughs> i don't feel like it i feel like i popped <laughs> off at several points and i and i'm a little embarrassed by it and i'm gonna no, no, have some uh, glucose and try harder <laughs> <laughs> no you really do and i think uh you are someone who is truly kind of made for the moment um and i always just really appreciate your contributions and your takes on things. Um, I wanted to, I know earlier in, and a lot of callers touched on this uh, as you as well, like the idea of the way that um, oppression Olympics can um, damage the ability to like build solidarity around like the working class and um, you know, 
uh, kind of identifying what the real problem is. And it's not, you know, who really suffered the most. Mm -hmm. um, It's really about why is everybody suffering? Mm -hmm. Um, But like, from my perspective, I mean, as as like, an obvious white person, um, you know, race is something that I, I try my best to like, listen more than speak about. But I also think that um, the idea of like white guilt, um, and like white fragility, like also hurts um, our ability to build solidarity as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I feel a lot like a lot of times, and this really happened to me a lot during the primary, um, you know, when I was talking about like, I don't know why anyone thinks like Joe Biden is going to like help black people. And it's so easy and so fast to, instead of like, ask me why I think that to go, well, you're just some dumb white bitch or you're being Mm -hmm. racist. Mm -hmm. And honestly, the people I get that from are white liberals. Mm-hmm. I get that too, girl. I get it. <laughs> Someone first told me under one of the first articles I wrote, wrote, um, you know, if it, it wrote a, a long daily coast response that was like, if this had been written by someone other than a white person, I might take note of it, but I'm just tired of all of these screeds from white, from white authors. I even Googled her to confirm that she was white. I was like, I don't know what picture you saw. <laughs> I'm the only one with Brianna with an H around these parts, except for Joy Fatone's daughter. So I'm not really sure what's going on here. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I, I definitely experienced that. that. That, that discourse is literally why I started writing. Mm. Literally. I wrote my first article on identity politics because I was so tired of that BS. And my whole yeah. career stems from my anger that people refused to engage with the point, and it was a hundred percent identity politics in twenty sixteen. Yeah, yeah, that really like blew me away. I found it even with like my own friend groups. Like, um, I was like sitting and having like brunch with a couple of like white girlfriends, and I was telling them about like a local politician who's kind of a big name where I'm from and he's a progressive and he's a black man. And well, he like, and some organizing I was doing, he kind of like let me and my or fellow organizers down a little bit. Mm. And literally like these two women that I've known for years, like were kind of gaslighting me and we're like, well, I think you're a little emotional. I think you're kind of sensitive. And <laughs> the table next to us was to black women and like when we had sat down at the same time and kind of were like chatting with them a little bit so they heard this conversation and they were like uh we have to know what are y'all talking about like tell us the tea um and so like I explained the situation to them and I could see my white friend's like face just like the color drain out of it Mm. she's like what is she gonna say to these black women (laughs) and so I told him the story and they just looked at me and goes, well, yeah, he's a politician. Of course he lied to you, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So I wish, I don't know. I don't know how to do that. And um, I guess you probably don't either, but how to like get white liberals to stop being like, such, you know, babies. Oh boy. <laughs> this is a really hard one. And I just had a conversation with a prospective um, book publisher and there's an effort to get me to write kind of a book about, 
you know, translating things for liberals and explaining the left to liberals. And as I'm listening to him thinking, well, maybe the focus needs to just be narrower because I'm a little exhausted of doing that whole, this is what the left is. This is the difference between a leftist and a progressive. I don't know that I have that in me, even though I think that someone needs to write that. Um, this narrower point about how kind of a desire to be to, to a kind of performative belief in racial equity that is kind of a soft bigotry of never having a real conversation with a person of color yeah, <laughs> um, and being so afraid of being called racist that you never say anything real or true and you allow a lot of malpractice to go on because you're not willing to call it out. Um, it's really fascinating. Uh, yeah. It's part of why stuff like the BLM grift and stuff ends up, it, you know, the national organization, not the movement as a whole, um, but that ends up being enabled by stuff like this. I mean, people were really surprised that, you know, Sean from last week's episode was able to even able to get that piece published uh, mm -hmm. because there is so much reluctance to, you know, the, the defense that a lot of the, the BLM national org founders have made of themselves in response to any scrutiny at all has been, you know, you're attacking black queer women. And that's the response that Sean got. And that stops a lot of people in their tracks who aren't themselves black or queer or female. And, yeah. And in part, I feel like I have this role. I'm in the place that I am politically and in the media in part because I am insulated against some of that because I am a black woman and that I don't enjoy that, but I do feel a responsibility in some ways because I know that I can say things and be open to conversations that other people cannot have, including that like black lives that matter episode. Mm. Um, and so I think that you're right and it's a real problem and that maybe someone needs to write about it, and, and it but it's delicate, you know, like I don't want a world where everyone starts like saying crazy shit that's wrong <laughs> also, right. you know, but at a certain point I do think that the, I don't know if I'm going to call it cancel culture, but the kind of fear of public sanction for saying something that's unintentionally bad, that this is an interesting point. If you guys will go, so let me go down this road in a little bit. Let's People guess. say cancel culture isn't real. Mm -hmm. People say you, you, what you really want is to be free from criticisms and that's not life. And if you say something and people don't like it, you got to deal with it. I think what becomes more cancely, I think that what has the flavor of something that's sincerely cancely is when people are making mistakes like whoopee saying things, not with malice, but that are wrong, you know, misunderstanding things. And, you know, I, I, you know, trans listeners can object and like call me out on this. I'm, I'm open to being told I'm wrong, but there are people who would argue that Joe Rogan is wrong, but was trying to get at something that's not intentionally bigoted about like, well, what is fair about like, how should we, you know, make sure that, you know, athletics that are sex segregated in order to acknowledge that like people who are, you know, born assigned at birth women, are weaker than people are assigned to birth men on the whole. Like, should we, you know, what, what level of hormones, how long do you have to be interested? Da, 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 like, what are the rules that should be in place so that people don't get hurt? Like you can disagree. You can think that he has all the facts wrong and science wrong about that. But when he says, you know, I support trans people, like I certainly don't want trans anti-trans laws in the books. Like I have, you know, the, the collapsing of you know, big picture transphobia into this discrete argument that he's making that you may or may not agree with. That's the, the kind of thing that I feel is like a kind of a gets into like a bad faith attack kind of a world that feels cancelly. And so someone who's saying something ignorant racially, you know, I, I it's I might not like to hear it. I might even get a little irritated about it. 
but I wouldn't want someone who was obviously not trying to be like racist or saying, I don't like black people or, you know, someone who's just kind of clumsy. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't want to be in a position where I would ever say, oh, you said this shitty thing and therefore like no one should like you or listen to you. Yeah. Well, yeah. And like, I kind of feel like when I listen to people like you or like Cornell West goes on Tucker Carlson, you know, and explains to him, like, we are trying to build a future that takes care of people. And I mean, in my mind, it's like, what is my excuse? Because, you know, and maybe this is my own white guilt, but it's like, if you're going to do it, then like, I definitely should. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, I mean, you see these people and saying that the tweet is like, you know, stop talking about uh, flipping white reactionaries. Go talk to your grandma. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, right, your yeah. family members like go handle it. And like, yeah, I, I, I get that. I, I sometimes, it does sometimes bother me. You know, you, you referenced a friend that you had. I had a friend. I mean, I hope she's still my friend, but she hasn't talked to me since 2020 um, from college who around the time of Trump's inauguration, we were all like having dinner at somebody's house and Trump came up and I was basically saying, you know, I was trying to have a conversation about why people voted for Trump and these broader kind of social economic factors in addition to bigotry. And she was just like not having it. And both her, her and her husband were from predominantly white, not especially progressive parts of the country. And my feeling was the psychology of what was happening was they felt the need to distance themselves from where they were from and their family and their communities by showing how not racist they were and how oppositional they were to that by basically saying everyone's a deplorable. How dare you entertain this? So now I'm at this dinner party where these two white people are crying and in my face and the large husband gets up and looms and like hollering in my face. I guess I don't care about racism enough. And they storm out of the party and I literally haven't spoken to either of them since then. Oh, you no. Know? So, I mean, like, and this is the, I mean, this is, and the other two people, two white women at the party were like, I'm sorry. Like they, I mean, this is not all white people hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, that was the scenario. And so I, I frequently have encountered this, I think, and I, I, I and they're not going to be bad people. I think that they really did feel the psychological need to call out racism so that they don't get perceived as racist racist in a way that I don't have that need because I am black and there's already this presumption that I'm not racist. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which so to that, I say that all to say you're making a point about how you think that you should be going into the lion's den more. And there's something to that, but I also think there's something to the fact that I am able to have some of these conversations more easily because there isn't the presumption that I'm ever going to be really operating in, in bad faith. Except for the people who call me the Canisoans of the of the left and think that I secretly <laughs> hate black people and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for taking the time to discuss that with me. No, it was my pleasure, Miss Mary Mack. And uh, thank <laughs> you for listening. And thank you for being, um, I, again, I don't mean to assume anything about anybody, but I, uh, the day is only female caller. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I was. I didn't even notice. That's part of why I was like, let's do one more <laughs> for gender parity reasons. Well, thank you. you. You boys are great too, though. Like, love, love all of you. No shame to the game. I thought this was a really great episode. I thought this conversation was really rich, and I really enjoyed all the twists and turns it took. So I'm going to always – I'm going to make this make this request as I do for people to clip the parts of the podcast that they think 
is most interesting. After I publish it, it generates a transcript in the app so you can scroll through real quick or like search for the bit where you spoke or whatever you want to do. Clip it. It it lives in the feed here on Colin and you can export it to social, which I will do to help people understand, I think, what is a really interesting and sophisticated analysis that's coming from you listeners. I want people to hear it. I want to clip it. To uh, Walker's point, I need support administratively for people to clip all this content up all the time. So if you guys want to make those clips, I love it when you do. Um, like I said, Thursday's episode is a banger. I know that you guys have been wanting to find out what, what happened in California. You know I've been skeptical of the state-by-state -state approach, regardless as a substitute for a federal approach. But I, I asked Ash some you know tough questions. The assembly member who ultimately chose not to force the vote on the state Medicare for All bill, even though it's a overwhelmingly Democratic majority in California, and Governor Newsom pretended to support it while he was trying to defeat his recall campaign. So we had it out. And I really respected Ash for coming on the show and submitting to this line of questioning. And I think you'll really enjoy it. Please go to Bad Faith Podcast on YouTube and subscribe there and hit the notification bell and all that stuff. I know people are financially constrained. Some people, somebody said they spent their last $5. I think it was Johnny on the Patreon. That makes my heart break a little. I don't want you to do that, actually. Every, we're fine. Everything's fine. But if you like and subscribe for free on YouTube, um, I appreciate that as well. And as always, take care of yourself. and. Keep the faith. Oh, no, I don't want to go out on that song. That's not what I wanted. I want to go out on. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. Like, deal with me for a second. Here we go.